New York, 1970. It's after midnight on a rain-drowned spring evening. We've ducked in to dry off and get warm at P.J. Clark's Saloon near East 55th Street on an empty 3rd Avenue. Clark's? It's a bar from another time, wonderfully trapped in its own sense of nostalgia, all burnished wood and chased mirrors. The walls are littered with Irish flags and other masculine memorabilia. The jukebox is crooning hits by the man seated at a back room table. The man is Frank Sinatra. He's wearing a dark suit with an impeccable red tie, a pale blue shirt, silver cufflinks. He's drinking Jack Daniels and smoking unfiltered camels. With him is Danny Levezo, who runs the bar. William B. Williams, the WNEW disc jockey who dubbed Sinatra the chairman of the board. Jilly Rizzo, one of Sinatra's best friends. A couple of beautiful young women. And two famous writers, Jimmy Cannon, one of the most well-known boxing columnists of the 20th century. And Pete Hamill, one of the most published New York City journalists of our time. The table is crowded with glasses, ashtrays, bowls of peanuts and pretzels. They're all talking and laughing together. After a minute, Jilly Rizzo gets up to call the women a cab, and the conversation turns to things like Hemingway or Fitzgerald. Who's the worst living American? They wonder if it's Walter O'Malley for moving the Dodgers, or Mitch Miller for being a hack A&R man. They eventually settle on Jake LaMotta, because when he took a dive in the fourth round of his fight against Billy Fox in 1947, he never told his own father what he planned to do. Amada's father bet his entire life savings on Jake. They talk of Sugar Ray Robinson too, until Sinatra excuses himself to use the restroom. When he returns, Billy Holiday's I'm a Fool to Want You is playing on the jukebox, straight out of 1951. 1951 wasn't a good year for Sinatra. It's now almost 2.30 in the morning. He says it's time to go. The men all get up and follow Frank into the night. For them, it was the end of the evening. But for us, it's just the beginning. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode number 85. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we spotlight the radio career of Frank Sinatra. We'll find out how a brash, skinny kid from Hoboken, New Jersey, became one of the most popular and influential music artists of the 20th century. He sold more than 150 million records worldwide, won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor, and used radio to launch it all. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this show everywhere you get a podcast and at thewallbreakers.com. Our opening theme song tonight is 
The Man with the Golden Arm by Elmer Bernstein. It's the title track from an incredible film starring, you guessed it, Frank Sinatra. Does The Man with the Golden Arm feel as hard-boiled to you as it does to me? Give a listen to our six-part audio drama miniseries called A Man Named Marlowe. It takes place in 1935 Los Angeles and stars Raymond Chandler's famous private detective, Philip Marlowe. It's available in the same feed as this podcast. And be on the lookout for new audio drama coming soon. I hope to have big information to share in the next two weeks. It goes with saying, if you've been enjoying Breaking Walls, give a quick iTunes rating and tell a friend or two. Word of mouth will help this show continue its record growth. You may also support these shows and unlock bonus content and other clips for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it really is a thrill to present our guest star for the evening, that wonderful singer of songs, the man who is solely responsible for the sale of 18 million bottles of smelling salts in the United States. Can't stand all this flattery. That's <laughs> Swona Kuna Kuna. From Pomona. Frank Sinutra. <laughs> Frank Sinutra. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dinah, not only for that swell introduction, but also for inviting me once again to the Bird Seed Eye View Open House. Bird's That's right. Eye Open House. Bird's Eye Open House. Yes. And may I tell you that uh, you look rather lovely tonight in that dress, Dinah? Well, thank you, Frank. It, it's really nothing. It's a... Uh, just a simple little thing. I got the idea from a magazine, Harper's Bazaar. Uh-huh. Well, you know, when I look at you in that dress, I get an idea from a magazine myself. Harper's? Police Gazette. <laughs> it doesn't say Police Gazette on the script. But really, Donna, you certainly... <laughs> you certainly are pitching in conserving materials for the public. Well, gee, won't it be wonderful when we don't have to worry about that sort of thing? You know, in the post-war world? Oh, yes, the post-war world. My spies told me that automobiles will have such perfect engines, you won't have to change the oil. And the houses will be air-conditioned against dust, so you'll never have to change the curtains. And even the post-war babies will be so perfect that you'll never have Frank, to change the... Frank, I, uh... I say something wrong? Hello, Frank. Well, hello, Harry Von Zellers. I live and breathe. Stop bragging. <laughs> Sunday, December 12th, 1915, 415 Monroe Street, Hoboken, New Jersey. We're at the tenement of Natalina Dolly Garavanta and Antonio Marty Sinatra. Dolly has just given birth to a baby boy. She's less than five feet tall and under 90 pounds. The boy was supposedly over 13 pounds at birth. The doctor called in to help with the delivery had to use forceps. He used them clumsily. He's cut the boy's left cheek, neck, ear, and perforated the newborn's eardrum. These scars and damage will remain for life. The boy is Francis Albert Sinatra. Motionless at first, it was thought he was a stillborn. But acting quickly, Frank's grandmother picked him up and stuck him under the cold water tap. Little Frank wailed out his first song. 
It was the couple's only child. Dolly and Marty were born in Italy. Each emigrated to the United States in the 1900s. They met in New Jersey, fell in love, and eloped on Valentine's Day in 1913. The early part of the 20th century saw a record number of Italians come to the U.S. Italians faced the prejudice all the newest immigrant groups faced before. Class, race, and social divides were prominent. Antonio publicly changed his name to the Irish-sounding Marty O'Brien, becoming a professional boxer. His ruddy complexion and blue eyes helped the ruse. He fought and lost to men like Bull Anderson, Mike Cashman, and Young Seeger before retiring due to wrist injuries. Dolly, also blue-eyed, became active in the local Hoboken Democratic Party circles. She used her fluency in various Italian dialects to help translate for immigrants during court proceedings, particularly those pertaining to requests for citizenship. This earned her the respect of local politicians who made her the area's Democratic Third Ward leader, the first immigrant woman and the first Italian to hold that position. Dolly worked as a midwife and supposedly an abortionist. She was also a civic protester, chaining herself to the city hall in support of women's suffrage in 1919. The Sinatras were also speakeasy owners. The bar they ran was called Marty O'Brien's. Frank later recalled spending time at the bar working on his homework, and occasionally singing a song on top of the player piano for spare change. I never wanted for anything, but we did not have an abundance of anything. It was a semi-slum area. It was typical of the middle 20s and the late 20s and through the Depression. And it was pretty rough, but there were, they, I've read and been told, or, or rather asked questions concerning gang wars and so on and so forth. Well, there weren't gang wars, but there were beefs and there were battles about position and who should cross the line into where we lived and cross the line into where they lived, you see. And I must say there were many times when I had to go on an errand that I skirted certain areas of the town, you know, because the cry went up, kill the Dago when he comes through the, through the corner of town. In 1925, there were millions of Ku Klux Klan members in the United States, 40,000 in New Jersey alone. The New Jersey members had public contempt for Italian immigrants. Dolly Sinatra understood that through politics, she could enlist law and government on the side of the Italians in her ward. She dressed Frank elegantly. Kids called him Scarface or Slacksy because of his fancy clothes. He was small, lean, and cocky, quick to fight, with a penchant for being a class clown and an interest in the arts. Two years later, in 1927, Dolly got Marty a job with the Hoboken Fire Department, and in 1931, the Sinatras bought their own home at 841 Garden Street for $13,400, not a small sum during the Great Depression. Frank continued to sing at the bar for quarters, and in junior high school, he joined the Glee Club. And thanks to radio, he was hearing Rudy Valley, Dick Powell, Russ Colombo, and the newcomer, Bing Crosby. I think I'm much more a singer than I am a crooner. In the days of Russ Colombo and Rudy Valley, I think that they were rightly termed crooners because they had very small, soft voices. They were very good at it, but when Bing came along, he was more of a singer. 
Sinatra's musical ear was formed by composers and lyricists like Jerome Kern, Cole Porter, and George Gershwin. He also understood from a young age that, no matter what he wanted to do, he'd have to get across the river to New York to do it. Sinatra wanted to sing. His parents protested. They wanted him to finish high school. But Sinatra was expelled from A.J. Demerhurst High School after 47 days. School administrators thought him lazy with no talent or ambition. To please his mother, he enrolled at Drake Business School, but left after 11 months. For a time, he worked as a delivery boy for the Jersey Observer, as a shipyard riveter, and for his girlfriend, Nancy Barbados' father. Sinatra later told author Pete Hamill, as a teenager, he discovered that the instrument wasn't really his voice, but the microphone. After dropping out of high school, he had nothing to lose. He wanted to be a singer and knew he had to get on the radio. You don't have to sing for money. No, it's You don't true. need the no, concert. Money. I don't have to work, no. no. But first of all, I enjoy what I do. If I didn't, then I wouldn't be doing it. I enjoy it because it's a challenge for me also. And, you know, I'm considered an over-the-hill performer now at my age. And there's no doubt about it that I think in the industry I'm considered an over-the-hill performer. But I do it because I do the best I can when I work, and I don't work that much. I'd rather do benefits and have more fun doing that than going in. If I work, I work in Vegas or Atlantic City. That's where I work. The only place. I go to saloons. Because it's, oh, but uh, you do concert tours too? Well, they do occasionally, yeah, I think they do Carnegie Hall, but that's, that's rare. You think you're an over-the-hill, do you classify yourself that way? Oh, sure, sure. Because when you think about what's selling today, well, who are the people who are known by millions of people? The younger people are, not any of us anymore. They know who we were, and they know who we are by people discussing us. Or maybe if I did a concert somewhere, and a family took their 18-year-old daughter or son to hear you, then they get to hear you, but it depends upon uh, what they're looking at. I mean, they're, they're looking at the, the guys with the guitars and all of the, the noise. <laughs> so that's not what we have, you know. Dolly eventually gave in and bought him a $65 sound system that included a microphone. He even had a car. The neighborhood musicians began to flock to him. It was never a question of money in those days. It really wasn't. If you had enough to live on, everything seemed right. We were growing. Everybody was pulling for each other and hoping to grow. The team effort was important in those days. Sinatra won an amateur contest at a state theater in New Jersey. In April of 1935, he convinced the Jersey City radio station, WAAT, to give him 15 minutes of unpaid weekly airtime. He took a long friend, Manny Galizio, who'd soon be playing on Sinatra's records. Dolly leaned hard on Joseph Samperi, the owner of the Union Club, an expensive Jersey night spot. Samperi hired Frank to sing, the club, however, didn't have a remote hookup to any radio station for band shows. So Sinatra convinced Fred Tamburo, James Petrozelli, and Pat Principe, three neighborhood guys who were singing as the Three Flashes, to let him join their group. Every weekend, the Flashes traveled north to perform with Harold Arden and his orchestra at a western-style nightclub on the Jersey Palisades called the Rustic Cabin. Frank was the designated driver, a 1934 Chrysler convertible. The job didn't pay much, but it had a radio hookup to WNEW. They were getting on the air. One Friday night, while the Flashes were taking five, 
a man approached and handed the quartet a business card. It belonged to Major Bowles, whose original amateur hour was the hottest thing on radio. The Major wanted the four flashes to appear in a couple of movie shorts. But when they arrived at the shooting location on Tremont Avenue in the Bronx, they were surprised to find the short film was to be a minstrel show. Frank played a waiter in blackface. When Major Bowes saw the footage, he immediately sent for the flashes. This is the Red Network of the National Broadcasting Company. And now, here is Major Bowes. All right. Thank you, Graham, and good evening, friends. He wanted them for his amateur hour radio program, changing the group's name to the Hoboken Four. They premiered on September 8th, 1935. The Hoboken Four, just because... I don't know. They seem so happy, I guess, and it's everybody else happy. Tell me, where do you work in Hoboken? Well, I work in a silk mill. I see. This party here was a page in the card market. I <laughs> see. And what about the other one? Well, Jimmy, he's in the dollar his father's ice cream parlor. <laughs> uh-huh. This fellow here never wiped it off. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what do you want to sing or dance or whatever it is you do? Oh, well, we're going to sing Shine and then we're going to dance. All, All right. right, let's have it. Hoboken Four. <laughs> the Hoboken Four won the contest and went on tour for the Major's Vaudeville Circuit. Sinatra was paid $12.50 per week, from which he had to pay his own expenses. I will. I'm Frank Major. Uh, we're looking for jobs. How about it? <laughs> uh, everyone that's ever heard us liked us. We think we're pretty good. And we play real swing music, too. Real modern swing music. Ultra modern music. What's your tune? The Choice of an Aching Heart. <laughs> the four mostly lived in YMCA's, cheap rooming houses, and fleabag hotels, eating at lunch counters. By mid-December, soon after his 20th birthday, Sinatra broke from the tour and went back to Hoboken, just in time for Christmas. In 1936, Frank Sinatra began exploring every conceivable singing opportunity in North Jersey. He did $2 a night gigs at the Elks Club, worked again at the Cat's Meow in the Union Club, and he took his mic back to WAAT in Jersey City. Music was in transition. The rise of the radio and phonograph changed the music industry. Power had shifted to the band leaders. Singers could find work from Tin Pan Alley producers, but there were few solo vocalists. Sinatra soon met two Tin Pan Alley song pluggers, Hank Sanicola and Jimmy Van Heusen. Sanicola would go on to work with Sinatra into the 1960s, and Van Heusen would compose music for every medium, winning an Emmy and four Academy Awards. Manhattan in the mid-30s was a hotbed for great jazz. Jimmy Dorsey played the New Yorker Hotel. Tommy Dorsey and Artie Shaw played the Hotel Pennsylvania. There was Leon and Eddie's, The Famous Door, the Onyx Club, Fats Waller, Art Tatum, Count Basie, and Louis Prima all played. Sinatra loved the smaller clubs, where he could hear Ethel Waters, Louis Armstrong, Mabel Mercer, and Billie Holiday. Here, he learned to tap into his soul. You've got to be on the ball from the minute you step out into that spotlight. You've got to know exactly what you're doing every second on that stage. 
Otherwise, the act goes right into the bathroom. It's all over. Good night. He spent nights at those clubs strictly as a spectator, while dogging radio stations like WATWOR and WNEW. They'd occasionally let him sing for free. Frank's cousin Ray, who was an arranger for the NBC Radio House Band, got him an audition on Fred Allen's Town Hall Tonight. Sinatra appeared on May 12, 1937. Uh, Mr. Sinatra, are you in the mood for a bit of, uh, of uh, byplay, as it were? Uh, wild exchange of pleasantries? Of course. <laughs> you, uh, you have an odd name. Are you related uh, by any chance to Ray Sinatra? That's right. You are, He's huh? dad's cousin. Oh, he's a cousin of yours? Right. Fine. And you have uh, your own little swing outfit here, huh? Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. many pieces? Five? There are four, four instrumentalists and myself. And yourself. That's right. I, uh, well, four, that's a rather a small uh, combination for swing music, isn't it? Oh, we make it plenty loud. Don't worry about that. <laughs> oh, you do? Well, I suppose the man on the flying trapeze, after all, got along with swing all by himself, <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> but for, uh, I was going to ask you whether... <laughs> The size of a musical uh, uh, aggregation uh, affected the, the type of uh, swing music that uh, the band would use, does it? Does it make any difference whether you have five or 50 or 40? Well, or... no, but uh, I think more or less you must be in the mood, and we're always in the swing mood. Oh, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it all goes well for us this evening, doesn't it? So, right. so many things have happened in music. I, uh, the, uh, the Dixieland Jazz Band was originally, supposedly, the first... Or jazz outfit, and jazz uh-huh. today is practically swing, isn't it? That's right. Gosh, I can remember when a band was considered hot if the drummer looked up from the music while they were playing. <laughs> Gosh, they used to... <laughs> Nowadays, you see a drummer with a band, he looks like a salesman at, at a notion counter or something. <laughs> a good drummer today can play anything from, from a, a lukewarm washboard to a hot shoe tree. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for your kindness, uh, uh, Mr. Sinatra. And now, uh, you and your, your little pygmy band here, what are you going to play? We'd like to swing exactly like you. Exactly like... Uh, that's a song. Don't swing like me or you'll be creeping around here. <laughs> exactly like you. Thank you. That year, the Rustic Cabin had an opening for a singing waiter and MC at $15 per week. The pay wasn't great, but the radio station hookup was still there. And WNEW had Dance Parade, a new broadcast featuring the cabin's band and singer. Dolly Snatcher called the mayor of North Bergen, Harry Steeper, who was a good friend of James C. Petrillo, the head of the American Federation of Musicians. Sinatra got the job. WNEW's dance parade gave Frank the added publicity he was looking for. In March 1939, saxophone player Frank Main arranged for him to audition and record a version of the song, Our Love. It was Frank's first solo studio recording. He got hired to perform at the Paramount Theater in New York. In June, 
Singer Louise Tobin heard Sinatra on the radio. She was astounded by how different he sounded from other vocalists. Her husband was Benny Goodman's former trumpet player, Harry James. James was starting his own band. He went to see Sinatra perform, and on the spot offered him a two-year contract for $75 per week. There was a single condition, though. Harry James wanted Sinatra to change his name to Frankie Satin. Sinatra told him it was a package deal. Taken aback by his confidence, James signed him anyway. The two became like brothers. Sinatra said years later to Pete Hamill, With Harry, for the first time in my life, I was with people who thought the sky was the limit. On July 13th, the band made two recordings for Columbia Records, From the Bottom of My Heart and Melancholy Mood. Initial sales were weak, but Sinatra began to develop a repertoire, which included songs like My Buddy, It's Funny to Everyone But Me, Here Comes the Night, and Every Day of My Life. In September, he recorded a song by Jack Lawrence and Arthur Altman called All or Nothing at All. They would get to number two on the charts, but only after Sinatra left the band. James was notoriously bad at managing his finances. There were many weeks that although Sinatra was supposed to be making three times his salary at the Rustic Cabin, he received no money at all. He was broke and becoming increasingly frustrated. Although he loved Harry James, Sinatra knew in order to keep growing, he'd have to look elsewhere. I guess we starved to death for about a year, and then one of the King sisters said that, you know, we're having, we're going to a big singer's jam session on Sunday. You guys are invited. And the jam session turned out to be at the house that Paul Weston and Axel Stordahl had rented for the summer while the band was playing the old Palomar ballroom. And so we went to their little rented house. I think every singer in town was there. It was a real singer's jam session. So we sang, and that's the first that Paul and Axel had heard us. And eventually they recommended us to Tommy, and Tommy had us on as guest stars just without ever having heard us. And we drove to New York to do one guest shop. Can you imagine eight silly people <laughs> driving to 3,000 miles? Oh, oh the promise of one guest shop? I guess it takes youth. But that's what we did, and that was our first acquaintance with Tom. But anyway, we did guest shots. I think, or I guess the 10th guest shot was the first time the sponsor had ever been in this country. The sponsor was in London, and the song that the Pipers were doing that day was Hold Tight, which got us fired. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, <laughs> the sponsor that. said, get those people <gasps> off my show. So, <laughs> in late 1939, Tommy Dorsey left word for Frank to pay him a visit in Chicago. Dorsey's lead vocalist, Jack Leonard, had recently quit. He wanted Sinatra. Dorsey's band had the reputation for being the smartest, toughest, hippest white swing band in the country, able to handle both riff-driven swing pieces and smooth ballads. Tommy Dorsey was also arguably the finest trombone player in the entire United States. He employed arrangers of all ethnic and religious backgrounds like Cy Oliver, Axel Stordel, Bill Finnegan, Paul Weston, trumpet player Bunny Berrigan, and drummer Buddy Rich. Dorsey signed Sinatra to a long-term contract for $125 per week at the Palmer House in Chicago. Harry James amicably released Sinatra from his contract, joking by telling Sinatra to let him know if Dorsey needed a trumpet player. He started as one of the Pied Pipers, whose female star was Joe Stafford, 
Tom has a, a reputation that I never saw. He was real easy. I never had one, not one word. Because I always found if you did your job, you'd had no trouble with Tom. He ignored honest mistakes. The one thing he wouldn't ignore was a laxness and not that he wouldn't tolerate, and I don't blame him. She remembered being unimpressed the first time she saw Sinatra walk out on stage. He was small, lean, with too much hair on top of his head. But then he began to sing. When they begin the beginning on January 26, 1940, Sinatra made his first public appearance with the band at the Coronado Theater in Rockford, Illinois, opening the show with Stardust. Dorsey was a major influence on Sinatra. He imposed strict rules, no lateness, a set of uniforms depending on the kind of performance, up to nine shows each day with rehearsals in between, and all-night bus rides to the next town. Sinatra copied Dorsey's mannerisms and traits, becoming a demanding perfectionist. He later said of Dorsey, he put together a show like it was one long piece of music, or like an album before the LP existed, with different movements and moods leading to a crescendo. I've experienced some wonderful things in my life. They were real. They were, every moment was absolutely real. I mean, driving 500 miles through the night to the next one-night stand and having 40 minutes to get out of the bus into the hotel, turn on the shower, a lot of steam, and hang the dinner jacket up, let <laughs> the wrinkles come out of it, grab a sandwich, show up on a bandstand, and then the greeting from the audience was the greatest reward in the world. On February 1st, 1940, the band cut The Sky Fell Down and Too Romantic. Then they came east to begin a New York showcase that would continue through the summer. Their first show on the East Coast was at Frank Daly's Meadowbrook on Route 33 in Cedar Grove, New Jersey. It was huge. Dorsey gave Sinatra featured billing, which angered drummer Buddy Rich. On March 4th, Sinatra recorded Polka Dots and Moonbeams, his first charting song with the Dorsey band. They were then headlining for the month at the Paramount Theater in Times Square. Larry King, and we're in New York for this appearance tonight. Uh, the Big Apple. A place where I was raised, and Frank was raised like across the river. He yeah, was but slumped. as soon as I could get out of there, yeah. I got over here. All right, when you're here, when you're in this city, here we are, we're yeah. like 34, we're four blocks, well, we're eight blocks from the Paramount. That's right. Eight blocks. That you think it. about that? Oh, sure. When I drive by there, you know, I remember the marquee and all that. That's uh, Frank Sinatra, and they lined up Nine in the morning. And, and they went down to 8th Avenue and all the way around the back up to Broadway. Again. And you did how many a day? Uh, one time, one Saturday, I did 11 shows. <laughs> we started at 8, 10 in the morning, and I finished at 2.30 the next Sunday morning. We did 11 shows. Does it give you an affinity for this city? Oh, absolutely. Always. Oh, yes. The first time I left to come here to be in New York City. I was maybe 16, 17 years old, just to look around. I was here with my parents when I was younger. Uh, they'd take, take me to Macy's to the Christmas thing and then and when I was 11, 10 or 11 years old. But then when I started, I jumped on a ferry boat in the days of the ferry boat for four cents and sometimes you didn't pay the four cents. When they used to pull out, you jumped on the boat. <laughs> you snuck over on the ferry. Yeah, you got on the ferry boat. They take the chain, put the chain across <laughs> and you said jump on the boat. But I fell in love with this city, I guess, the first time I probably had. I don't even remember what it was. I just fell in love with it. It's it shows it when you sing that song, huh? Oh, it's alive. It's got, it's got so much to it. 
So much to Still it. true. Make it there, you make it anywhere. That's right. Anywhere. If you make it here, you're a hit wherever you go. I don't care where you go. Direct from New York, so-and-so, here he comes, and you know you're a hit. Young women lined up for hours ahead of time for the first show at 9 a.m. When that show was over, they refused to leave, staying for five more. Sinatra came up with the publicity stunt of bringing out a big tray of food after the first morning show to tide over his increasingly fanatical fan base. The band lived at the Astor Hotel, and beginning that May of 1940, they were booked to play the Astor's posh roof garden. Guests were the wealthiest of the wealthy, an entirely different crowd than Frank was used to singing for. On Tuesday, May 21st, Sinatra opened the first show with a Pied Piper song. The next number was Begin the Begin. Sinatra's performance was so good, with a finish so powerful, that the normally reserved Astor Hotel guests went crazy, shouting for an encore. Dorsey allowed it. He told Sinatra, just call out the tunes and Joey will play him for you. Four encores later, during Smoke Gets In Your Eyes, pianist Joe Bushkin blanked. He stopped playing mid-verse, and Sinatra continued in a cappella to the amazement of everyone in the room. Joe Bushkin said years later, that was the night that Frank Sinatra happened. When three unlikely heroes are plucked from jail to defend the wedding of the millennium, they're sucked into an adventure of talking gargoyles, anarchist bandits, and royal betrayal. Something old, something new, something borrowed, and something that might kill you on Join the Party. Our heroes are Johnny B. Goodlight. Undying Light be with you. An overzealous warlock and everyone's magical dad. Inara Harthorn. That was a pretty sweet flip, right? Aspiring assassin and cool queer skater teen. And designation TR8C. But you can call me Tracy. He is very adorable and he will murder you. And Game Master Eric, who plays everybody else. Like Stoneface, the easy riding gargoyle eight. If you don't know your D20 from your D8, learn the rules of Dungeons and Dragons while listening along with our beginner track. Or if you're a gaming veteran, get straight to the action with episode one. Subscribe to Join the Party on iTunes, Acast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The party's just getting started, and you're invited. Please bring ice. Two days after the opening night performance at the Astor, Tommy Dorsey took a core unit of his band to the RCA recording studio in Rockefeller Center to cut a mournful ballad written by pianist Ruth Lowe called I'll Never Smile Again. When the record came out five weeks later, it shot to number one on the very first Billboard chart. And it stayed there, turning Frank Sinatra into a national star. The Dorsey band's initial booking of three weeks at the Aster was extended to 14. Meanwhile, on June 8, 1940, Nancy Sandra Sinatra was born at the Margaret Haig Maternity Hospital in Jersey City. Two years prior, Frank had been arrested while working for the rustic cabin when his girlfriend, 
the normally very respectful and reserved Nancy Barbado, got into a fight with another woman with whom Sinatra had been sleeping. That woman was older, separated from her husband, and definitely not liked by Dolly Sinatra. Dolly made sure that Frank stayed with the steady, sincere, and dependable Nancy. They were married on February 4th, 1939. Nancy toured with Frank while he was with the Harry James Band, when Frank sent her home with the rest of their money when things were looking financially bleak. They both remember those poor days with the James Band as being some of their happiest together. They were truly a couple. Frank missed the birth of his daughter. In fact, he missed most things at home in those days, even though he was staying just across the river in Manhattan. At this time, his extramarital affairs were numerous. He slept with beautiful women, both known and unknown. Impeccable with his dress and cleanliness, the boys in the Dorsey Band gave him the nickname Lady Macbeth because of his frequent showers and outfit switches. On Tuesday, June 25th at 10 p.m., the Dorsey Band began a summer-long run on NBC while Bob Hope was on vacation. In August, things came to a head between Sinatra and drummer Buddy Rich. Rich was incredibly gifted. They'd begun as roommates and respected each other musically, but both wanted to be the second-billed alpha of the band. The two fought. After the dust-up, Dorsey sent Sinatra home. Dorsey could get by without a singer for an evening, but he needed his drummer. Sinatra felt humiliated. A few nights later, Buddy Rich went to Child's Restaurant in Midtown for some dinner in between sets. As he was returning to the Aster, he felt a tap on his shoulder. He turned, and the night exploded. Years later, Rich told his biographer that two men had given him a cold, efficient, professional beating. As Sinatra's star rose, he became more independent and demanding. If Tommy Dorsey was late to rehearsal, it was Frank Sinatra who acted as a substitute orchestra leader. October 17th, the Dorsey Band became the orchestra for Fame and Fortune, a musical quiz show, airing Thursdays at 8.30 p.m. on NBC's Blue Network. The gig would last until April of 1941. In the winter of 1940, the band went out to the West Coast, starring at the Hollywood Palladium, playing the crowds filled with celebrities, and acting in the Paramount B film Las Vegas Nights. Dolores, the song featured in the film, would shoot to number one. I have heard among this clan you are called a forgotten man. Is that what they're saying? Well, did you ever? The night of the original fight stayed with Frank. Tommy Dorsey had become a father figure to Sinatra, but Sinatra was still replaceable so long as he was a band singer. In May of 1941, Billboard named Sinatra Male Vocalist of the Year. 
one day while filming Road to Zanzibar at the Paramount lot. Bing Crosby stopped by the set. It was the first time they'd met. Crosby told Frank that he'd go far in the business, and Bing wasn't one to say anything he didn't mean. It's not just his talent, it's not just his voice that makes him a star. It's his supreme self-assurance and his absolute control. He has an animal tension, a suggestion of violence, even of danger, of a temper that might break through. And then he has that unexpected and disarming grin. And he's got an undertone of irony, of bite which is very rare in a popular singer. I think that the final test of a performer is his after effect. I mean, what happens after the performance is over? How much impact has he registered? The song ends, but he leaves the air charged. By this time, an entire nation of women were showing up at concerts and appearances. They were the young women of the new decade, with calf-length skirts, ankle-length bobby socks, and saddle shoes or Mary Janes. At first, Tommy Dorsey smiled about it. They were filling his pockets. When the girls swooned, the band would swoon right back at them. In late 1941, the band started its second run at the Paramount in New York to huge crowds. By November, they were back on the West Coast, this time to be featured in an MGM musical called Ship Ahoy, starring Eleanor Powell. Sinatra sang two songs with the Pipers and a third with the comedian Red Skelton. The more often he sold out both coasts, the more often he appeared in films, the greater Sinatra's chance at becoming a true breakout star. One cool morning, Sinatra was walking between sound stages in Culver City when he ran into a red-haired pianist he knew named Skitch Henderson. With him was a beautiful, dark-haired, green-eyed woman. Henderson introduced them. It was Ava Gardner. Not long after, Sinatra bumped into a former talent he'd known in the rustic cabin days. His name was Manny Sachs. He was now the manager of popular music at Columbia Records. Sinatra asked Sachs if Columbia would be interested in recording with Sinatra as a solo artist. Sachs said they very much would. Two days later, Downbeat named Frank Sinatra Male Vocalist of the Year. Now, Sinatra just had to get out of his contract. Taken out of the NBC newsroom. Good afternoon, everybody. This is H.V. Kaltenborn speaking to you from the NBC newsroom. Here is what has happened. President Roosevelt phoned Secretary Early half an hour ago that the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor, the United States naval base on Oahu Island in the Hawaiian Islands. A few minutes later, he again phoned Mr. Early and told him that planes had attacked Manila. This means that war is underway between Japan and the United States. President Roosevelt's announcement of Japanese air attacks on United States Pacific bases 
Staggered London, according to a dispatch just received. And London now awaits Night and day You are the one Only you Tommy Dorsey Band was starring at the Palladium when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and Manila, finally sending the United States into World War II. Simultaneous word on the street is that Jimmy Dorsey's singer Bob Eberly was thinking of going solo. Frank Sinatra paid you one of the finest possible tributes, I think, when he said Bob Eberly is the greatest big band singer of them all. Yes, he did. I was in Tokyo, Arnold, when I heard about the, what he had said. I've always thought about Frank Sinatra, in spite of what the news media, how it maligned him and so many times, and the real charitable, warm heart that he has. It really wasn't necessary for him to say what he did about me, and I certainly did appreciate it. The two liked each other, but if Eberly or Perry Como, who was starring with the Ted Weems Orchestra, decided to go solo before Sinatra, he'd have an even rougher go of it. Sinatra pushed Tommy Dorsey to allow him to record some solo songs. Tommy was in hot water with the IRS. He owed $80,000 in back taxes. Sinatra insisted that the solo songs would make the band some money. Dorsey eventually relented, and on January 19th, 1942, Sinatra recorded Night and Day. The song is you, the night we called it a day, in Lamplighter's Serenade at RCA's Bluebird Record Studios. Sinatra used Axel Stortle as arranger and conductor. Perhaps to Dorsey's surprise, Frank Sinatra gave his notice in February of 1942 with 10 months remaining on his original contract. Tommy Dorsey was willing to let him go, but seemingly also felt betrayed that Sinatra would leave. Manny Sachs agreed to sign Sinatra as a solo star for Columbia Records the moment he was legally divorced from Dorsey and RCA. As this was happening, the head of the American Federation of Musicians, James C. Petrillo, began a strike against American recording companies over royalty payments. I'll let Les Tremaine and Jack Brown explain. In 1941, AFM told its members they couldn't play on co-op programs. Now, those were the network programs sponsored cooperatively. That is, programs fed to affiliate stations by the networks, but sponsored locally. That's right. The Musicians' Union contended that the network origination of the shows eliminated a requirement for local productions, thus putting musicians out of work all over the country. But the stand assumes that if the co-op program wasn't available, the affiliate stations would present locally produced shows with live musicians. That was not usually the case, however. The stations had other options which fit more easily into their budgets. Were many popular programs affected by the ban? Oh yes, quite a few. And the AFM didn't allow its members to play co-op shows again for almost six years. Mm, that's a long time. In June 1942, the AFM issued notice that members would not be allowed to make recordings or transcriptions of any kind after August 1st. Records generally were 10 inches in diameter, made of shellac, and ran at a speed of 78 revolutions per minute. They were available to the general public. Transcriptions, on the other hand, used for recording sponsored programs or music library services for radio stations, usually were 16 inches across, ran at 33 and a third RPM, and were made of the more expensive vinylite. 
And even if the larger transcriptions had been available to the public, home gramophones or Victrolas would not have been able to play them because of their size and speed. The ban on recording, however, applied to both the large and the smaller discs. He wanted radio stations to increase the number of musicians on their payrolls. Most airtime was devoted to music of one kind or another, and he felt the musicians should receive a larger share of radio's profits. So he refused to allow union musicians to make any recordings at all. He just about shut down the recording business. Most people thought Petrillo would never go through with it because America was too busy fighting a world war and an undivided home front was more important than a strike. By July, it was clear the ban would take place. Record companies began to stockpile new material with their most popular artists. Tommy Dorsey's band was no exception. When Sinatra offered to help Dorsey find his replacement singer, Tommy informed him that Sinatra would not be leaving the band as easily as Sinatra had imagined. The pair stopped speaking only resuming conversation in the early fall. Eventually, Dorsey accepted the truth. Let him go, he was remembered saying. It might be the best thing for me. What Dorsey didn't realize at the time was that Sinatra would also be taking a ranger Axel Storrell with him. Although Sinatra didn't have the money at present, he offered Axel $650 per month, five times his Dorsey's salary, knowing that if the pair worked together, They'd easily be making that kind of money in no time. Dorsey was furious. He arranged to sit down with Sinatra and Dorsey's agent, Leonard Vanerson. In exchange for Sinatra's release, plus an advance of $17,000 to the singer to start a solo career, Dorsey had Frank sign a contract, making Dorsey his manager, guaranteeing a 10% agent fee to Vanerson and 33% of all Sinatra's earnings for the next 10 years. Sinatra, eager to be free, signed it. Later, Sinatra's new agent, Frank Cooper, took a look at the contract and gasped. Frank told him, don't worry, I'm not going to pay Dorsey a quarter. Sinatra made his last radio broadcast with the Dorsey Band on September 3rd, 1942, at the Circle Theater in Indianapolis. After tonight, he's going to be strictly on his own. And Frank, I want to tell you that everyone in the band wishes you the best of luck. Thanks, Mike, and... I'd like to say that I'm going to miss all you guys after kicking around for three years. And ladies and gentlemen, I'd like you to meet the boy who's going to take my place as the vocalist with Tommy in the band. He's a fine guy, a wonderful singer, and, and he was good enough for Harry James and Benny Goodman, and that's really saying plenty. Folks, I'd like you to meet Dick Hames. Well, Frank... Well, Frank, I don't know if anyone can really take your place with this band. But I'm going to be in there trying. You can bear on that. As for you, well, I know that you'll be knocking them dead on your own hook. I agree with you there, Dick. And thanks a lot, Dick Haynes. Frank, before you hit the road, how about one more song just for old Lang Syne? That's all right with me, Tom. Give me the beat on our arrangement of the song is you, and I'll see what I can do with it. George Evans, who'd previously represented Rudy Valley, signed on to represent Frank. Evans began billing him as The Voice, a nickname that would stick with Sinatra through the 40s. Evans hired women based on how loud they could scream, 
paid them five bucks each, and spread them throughout the audience to help incite the rest of the women into tumult. He also told Sinatra to treat the microphone as you would a woman. Caress it, make love with it. Crowds were enormous. Times Square became Sinatra's. I remember once my, I took my grandfather, my father's dad, who was then, he's been gone for many years now, but he was then about, oh, close to 80 years old. We brought him over to the Paramount Theater and I put him in the third row and among the kids. He had never seen me work before. He couldn't speak English at all. And he didn't know what the hell happened to him because when I came on on the stage, everything broke loose and he just sat there and he was terrified. I could see his face, he was absolutely terrified. They brought him back in the dressing room after the performance. He just, he was so angry that he came that far and never heard me sing. He was really angry about it. He didn't understand that that was the game that the kids played, you know. It was hysterical. In early January 1943, RCA Victor released There Are Such Things. Although there was an ongoing AFM recording ban, due to Sinatra's popularity, many of his early recordings with Harry James and Tommy Dorsey were reissued. Columbia soon signed Sinatra, and on February 13, 1943, CBS named him the star of its massive radio show, The Lucky Strike Hit Parade. Andre Baruch was one of the show's longtime announcers. The Hit Parade, which was sponsored by American Tobacco, was a very unusual show in that, uh, first of all, it was controlled by one man, basically, who didn't know too much about music, George Washington Hill, the president of the American Tobacco Company. He wasn't interested in beautifying the music or rearranging it. You know, he played the lady in red, boom, it just went the lady in red, da -da 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 -da, as fast as you could go, you know. And a singer was killed on the show, and he had some great singers on there. My wife was one, uh, Barry Wood, Frank Sinatra, Lawrence Melchior, Lawrence Tibbet, <laughs> they all had to sing according to Mr. Hill's dictates. Fred Allen, whose show Sinatra had appeared on in 1937, had him back on in the spring. Thank you very much. Uh, gosh, Frank, right now, I must be the envy of every jitterbug in America. Well, how do you mean, Fred? Why, I'm standing right next to you. I'm close enough to touch you. Uh huh? They told me you'd start off by trying to make a touch. <laughs> Two lines, and I'm a straight man already. <laughs> well, tell me, Frank, what is this terrific appeal you have? Girl stampede wherever you go. What have you got that I haven't got? Uh, perhaps I haven't got something that you have got, Fred. Now, please, no life boy plugs, Frank. <laughs> oh, that's right. Now, look, Frank, you're on the hit parade. You have your own program. You sing at nightclubs and theaters. You must need a lot of songs. Now, I have a song. Some other time. I'm working at Frank Daly's Terrace Room over in Newark, and I've got another show to do tonight. Now, look, I can meet you, Frank. I can meet you right after the show. If you, I'll bring my metronome. If you hear me, if you hear me sing this song. No, Fred, I'm sorry. After the show, I've got to rehearse some new numbers. I'm opening the Paramount a week from Wednesday. Again? Well, you were just there. Why, uh, you were just there a few months ago. They held you over for eight weeks. That's right, Fred. The public hasn't been very kind to me. Why, the last time you played the Paramount, the Jitterbugs had a picnic there, Frank. The kids built campfires in the lounge. <laughs> they had a big weenie roast going in the balcony. And when the picture finally went on, two Guy Lombardo fans were mugged in the mezzanine. <laughs> George Evans was also doing his best to keep Sinatra's image clean getting him home with his wife and daughter in suburban New Jersey more often. 
he kept Frank as straight as possible and took Nancy Sinatra shopping and helped her stay in shape. Evans needed their marriage to work. In 1940s America, scandal and divorce could kill Frank Sinatra's career. In Nancy, he found an ally and a friend. His efforts were working. By April of 1943, Nancy was pregnant again. Tonight, the Columbia Broadcasting System opens a new little theater, the Broadway Bandbox with songs by Sinatra and music by Scott. And here is Frank Sinatra. On July 19th, Sinatra became the host of CBS's Broadway Bandbox. Axel Stortel continued to lead the orchestra, and in October, comedian Burt Wheeler was added to the cast. Sinatra's radio and film careers were about to take off. Since you have Yeah. Good morning. My name is Frank Sinatra. What? <sighs> Just a moment, please. Uh, don't you feel well? Oh, I... I feel wonderful. Well, uh, let's pull ourselves together, shall we? Did... Did you, did you come to see me? No. I came to see the young lady that waves like that. Oh, the one who waves like that? Uh-huh. She's in here. Come on. Sinatra began to receive film and radio roles that allowed him to act a little, too. Like in this fittingly tiled, Higher and Higher. He played himself. I brought you some flowers. Oh, for me? Uh-huh. And a new song. Oh, thank you. Sweet. The film co-starred Michelle Morgan and Jack Haley. It was released on New Year's Day, 1944. That day was very significant in Sinatra's life. It was the same day he officially became a resident of the state of California. Thank you. Here again is Truman Bradley. Thank you, Frank. Well, according to the weather, summer is definitely here. Yes, and I'm taking Vims. My doctor told me to. Say, I had no idea I might need Vims more in hot weather than in winter. Well, Next, CBS gave him his own 30-minute show, sponsored by the Lever Brothers. It debuted four days later, Wednesday, January 5th, 1944, at 9 p.m. The vitamin supplement the Lever Brothers were promoting was called Vims. Due to Sinatra's small, lean stature, it became the subject of easily written jokes. But Sinatra was also able to editorialize his political and social feelings. Friends, as I talk to you now, the armed forces of the United Nations are engaged in the greatest crusade of all times, a crusade to free the world from the threat of slavery and oppression. These are historic hours, a time for courage and hope. With this thought in mind, then, my co-workers and I feel it only fitting to put aside our regular program, and so we naturally turn to our first love, music. And tonight, in memory of and in tribute to all the men who have passed through the valley of the shadow of death for this nation, I would like to sing a song that is more than... Sinatra's writer, Carol Carroll, was with Chuck Shaden in February of 1975. You wrote for Frank Sinatra, too, didn't you? A lot. Uh-huh. Not only did I do the show for him, 
but I wrote a lot of his political material. He was heavily into what was then called tolerance, mm -hmm. later became integration. Frank was asked by Drew Pearson of fond memory if he would substitute for him once while he went on a, away. It was a half hour. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a half hour Drew Pearson show for Frank Sinatra in which he wrote his things. And I, I was on the uh, Union Pacific San Franciscan, I think, or Las Life. They had a name. And I wanted to hear this thing the worst way, and that's how I heard it. They <laughs> had a radio in the bar car of this train, and they didn't know an awful lot about how to run a radio on a railroad train in those days, but they knew it could be done, and they were working on it. The barman had opened up the car. It was about 11 o'clock where I was that this thing went on, and the speaker was in the base of the bar, it's where everybody kicked his knee when he had his third drink. <laughs> and I had to sit on the floor with my head almost in the speaker to understand anything. And the barman, once he got the hang of what Frank was talking about, which was the need to recognize black people and so, he was sitting down next to me. And when it was all over, he was crying and he said, that Mr. Sinatra must be a fine man. It was really a very good... He was touched. Francis Wayne Sinatra, known as Frank Sinatra Jr., was born on January 10, 1944, six days after the VIM-sponsored show premiered. Like his sister, Frank Jr. was born at the Margaret Haig Hospital in Jersey City. Also like his sister... Frank wasn't there at the birth. Patsy. Hi. Well, sis, aren't you glad to see me? So you've really come to pay back that 20 bucks you borrowed four half a year And ago. for the remainder of the war, Sinatra would be all over CBS programming. You, sis. Believe me. Say, guess who we just got for an agent, Patsy? Gus Avery. Oh, that chiseler. Hey, Steve. Yeah. My brother, Eddie. Steve Kluski, the boyfriend. It's a pleasure to meet you, Steve. Why? This is an episode of the Lux Radio Theater called Don't Wake Up and Live, an adaptation of a novel written by Dorothea Brand. Lux was one of the most expensively produced shows on radio. This episode aired on February 21st, 1944. Between 1944 and 48, Sinatra would appear on the program five times. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Frank Sinatra. We're all mindful of the situation overseas, and should any bulletins arrive from invasion headquarters, why, our program will be interrupted so that you may hear them immediately. Thank you very much. See, that was wonderful. You know, he'd be great on my show. I'm going to phone New York right now. Maybe I can catch Sinatra before he leaves the studio. Hand me the phone, Mary. Long distance. Oh, operator, I want to speak to New York. I'd like to get Frank Sinatra. So when I poopsie. <laughs> Look, miss, will you please ring Mr. Sinatra for me, person to person? He's on the hit parade in New York. Just a moment, sir. I'll try the New York circuit. Los Angeles calling New York. Los Angeles calling New York. Hello, Los Angeles. This is New York. How are you, Los Angeles? 
Look, operator, I don't care if San Francisco's got water under the bridge. I want to speak to Frank Sinatra. Now, please hurry. All right, all right. As Frank Sinatra became the most popular singer in the country, the agreement he signed before leaving the Dorsey Band came back into discussion. Just a moment. I'm sorry, sir, the lion is busy. Will you call back when... Sinatra reportedly tossed Dorsey a $1,000 bone with the hopes it would ease the tension. It only created more. Sinatra was seen around town living up with everyone imaginable. He also bragged to the press about how much money he was raking in. Tommy Dorsey wanted his cut. Instead, on the direction of George Evans, Sinatra had his radio writers inject comic jabs at the band leader on the Frank Sinatra show. Evans even paid Bobby Soxers to carry picket signs outside a Dorsey show in Philadelphia. Okay, here's your party. Go ahead, Mr. Sinatra. Hello. There was little truth to the rumor further than The Godfather, which intimates Sinatra called a few mob buddies to get him out of the agreement. Oh, hello, Mary. How are you? Fine. Gee, Frankie, your voice... What did happen was something much more American. Sinatra called lawyer Saul Jaffe, who was the secretary of AFRA. Jaffe called Dorsey and informed him that, unless an agreement could be reached, Dorsey's days on the air were over. The talent agency MCA was simultaneously able to snatch Sinatra away from his former agency by brokering the settlement. Mary, Mary, who in the world are you talking to? Frank Sinatra. Sinatra, give me that phone. Hello? Hello, Frank, this is Jack Benny. Hello, Jack. Now, Frank, I won't beat around the bush. How would you like to sing on my program? Well, Jack, it sounds interesting, but, uh, of course, there's the question of money. Money? This call ain't gonna last no three minutes. <laughs> Dorsey would receive $60,000. 35K came from MCA, and 25K came from Columbia Records. Sinatra paid no money out of pocket. $60,000 in 1943 is over $850,000 today. Yes, I know, but unfortunately, I'm not a minor. No kidding, Frank. You come on my program, and you'll go places. You know, when Dennis... Well, tickets at the uh, USO and various uh-huh. places, you see. And, of course, tickets were in great demand because they're all the big stars. We did, I recall, one show was Bing and Frank Sinatra and Bob Hope, all three of them, you see. You get shows like that with all kinds of stars, and, of course, they're all glad to do them. And there were some great shows, of course, that were never heard in this country. That's right, yeah. And there were tremendous shows that were just done overseas. Now, remember a really fabulous show during the war that originated in Hollywood where most of the big stars did their own shows. It was called Command Performance, and G.I.s would write in and ask for something like, uh, I would like to hear Rita Hayworth sigh. So the MC, who might be Orson Welles or Bob Hope, would say, And now by Command Performance, Miss Rita Hayworth will sigh for Private Joe Smith in Sicily. And she'd get up to the microphone and she'd go, Hmm. And thank you, Miss Rita Hayworth. And she'd step down. And I'm quite sure that no personality in radio or movies or Broadway ever refused one of those command performances. So believe me, it was a dazzling show. Hello, everybody. Hello, Frank. I'm awfully glad you got here. Well, every once in a while, one of those long shots come in. (laughs) How are you, Frank? How would you know? (laughs) Oh, I feel fine, Mr. Crosby. Let's declare a little moratorium on the formality, Frankie. Just call me Bing. Oh, no, I wouldn't dream of calling a man of your years by his first name. 
Manned performance took to the airwaves on March 1, 1942, over a special service division of the War Department called the Armed Forces Radio Service. Both Ken Carpenter and Gary Moore, whose remarks you just heard, worked on the program. The program had an estimated weekly budget of $75,000. Both CBS and NBC gave free use of talent. Say, are you talking about me, Atlas? Yeah. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Is that so? Yeah, that's so. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. How come I don't get any of that clever dialogue? The show arose when the War Department asked Luke Cowan of the radio division, to think up a format to entertain overseas troops. You started it. I did not start it. You did, you did, you did. Oh, my old, my old man can lick your old man. It would be called a command performance. The GI who was trained to obey commands could now command anything he or she wanted from the radio world. Frank Sinatra appeared at least nine times on the program during its World War II era broadcasts. This episode featured Sinatra with Bing Crosby, Bob Hope, and Judy Garland. Crosby and Sinatra take part in a singing contest to see who'll make the better co-star in Judy Garland's next musical. Bob Hope provides one-liners and, as usual, amusing obnoxiousness. Why, Bingsy, do you think I'd do anything that wasn't absolutely on the up-and-up? Do you think I'd dishonestly let Sinatra win this contest when a lousy five dollars could swing it your way? As 1944 turned into 1945, Sinatra scored another number one hit with Saturday Night is the Loneliest Night of the Week. He also left the Lucky Strike hit parade after its December 30th, 1944 episode. Next Thursday, same time, we will have an unusual program for you that you won't want to miss. It will bring you, in his first appearance as a dramatic actor, Mr. Frank Sinatra. And appearing with Mr. Sinatra will be that incomparable actress, Miss Agnes Moorhead. Don't miss them next week on... Suspense! It would be a January 1945 role on Suspense, however, that would push... Sinatra's dramatic acting into new creative areas. Howard? I won't be spied upon, Mrs. Gillis. I won't put up with that. Well, see, see here, lad, I, I think we must have gotten off on the wrong foot. I'm not then why do you keep popping in like this? Well, Would you like me to go faster? Would you like me to spill out my life's blood for you here on the floor? Is that what you're after? Howard, are you well? Or are you well enough to work? Of course I'm well. If only you'd quit bothering and pestering and questioning me. Is that too much to ask? Well, look. Look, Howard, I'm, I'm interested in young men. I have two boys of my own. They're in the service. You see that bill on the desk there? He's a Marine. And, and, and on the table there, that's Dennis. He's in the infantry. He's overseas. So that's why you hate me. I see it all now. Hate you? What? Well, whatever gave you that? Yes, you hate me. I could tell it the moment I walked into this house this morning. But how are you? You hate me because I'm young and I'm not in the service like your boys. Why? On January 18th, 1945... Sinatra co-starred with Agnes Moorhead on an episode of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. He plays an unhinged young man, hired by Agnes Moorhead to do chores around the house and provide some company. Son, son, you're ill. Let's, let's 
put the work away now, and I'll make you a cup of tea. Sinatra first registered for the U.S. draft in December of 1940. As a new father, he had been granted an exemption from service. But in the fall of 1943, the government abolished many deferments for married fathers. Meanwhile, Sinatra was already catching flack from resentful soldiers. I'll tell you why I'm not in the army, if you insist. I don't insist at all, Howard. If you must know, I'll tell you. They said, they said there was something wrong with my mind. It was assumed he was avoiding the draft because he was a star. And while ordinary men were away at war, Sinatra was at home, living it up, and sleeping with their wives and girlfriends. The assumption was only partially incorrect. The first thing that I thought of when I reached the hallway was the phone. But in December of 1943, Army doctor Captain Joseph Weintraub examined Sinatra in Newark and declared him medically unfit to serve, or 4F. All right, as long as you're way ahead of me, when did Yankee Doodle first come out? Well, Ma, the first known appearance of Yankee Doodle... He was disqualified because of the chronic puncture in his left eardrum. He was also only 119 pounds, four pounds below the Army minimum, for a man with a height of five feet, seven and a half inches. Unfortunately, rumors persisted amongst enlisted men. Many of those rumors were fueled by right-leaning William Randolph Hearst's own newspapers, who opposed Sinatra's very public Democrat leanings. And that was the year that Axel Stardall wrote special lyrics for the tune of Yankee Doodle. He didn't make a GI tour until May of 1945, when he went out on the road to camps for six weeks with comedian and friend Phil Silvers. He was worried about his reception, but for the most part, Sinatra came through unscathed with his popularity cresting. I think it was a time period that it was important for them to have somebody to root for. You know, it was uh, during the war years. I always felt that I was, in their minds, one of the kids from the neighborhood who grew up and That's became a success. I think there was a lot of sex involved there, Frank. I truly do. I think it's sex. Well, you're really a lady. Can't... You see, I, I don't... <laughs> I'm entitled. Yeah, but, you know, I... but I really do. I think. How did you feel when that first Bobby Foxer bit the dust, or the first ten thousand? I was very confused. I had never seen it. Nobody had ever heard that before. That kind of reaction. I was also confused because it was very difficult working in the theater in those days. Because if I did this during a song, they would squeal and scream, but it was a natural thing to do. <laughs> yeah. And I was afraid to move after a while. I, was, I just wouldn't do anything. And then if I, what they called, bent a note, if I just kind of looped the oh, note. Oh, I know. That, well, that turns would, everybody well, on. Well, they would that. wail, you know. Yes. And, and then finally, uh, it got so that I couldn't even hear myself finish a whole song. You don't understand, Oogie. You see... He represents everything that a girl wants out of romance. Hmm. Her ideals of, of what perfect love is like. The way she feels about him is, is the way she wants to feel about... Well, the man she'll be in love with someday. Only she knows that nothing will ever be as good as how Frankie makes her feel love could be as good as. Is that clear, Oogie? No, but go ahead. Well... He is a girl's dream of the utter acme of ideal love. And when he stands before you there on the screen, you see something absolutely beautiful. Mm, thin Bing Crosby. <laughs> All right, then. If you just want to ignore real artistic exquisiteness... Well, what do you want to do, marry the guy? Oh, of course not, Oogie. I know he's, well, unattainable and remote and... <laughs> Thank you.
Frank Sinatra is right at this very moment standing by an NBC microphone in New York City. But before I introduce Frank Sinatra in person, may I say that we're about to present him with a very, very fine silver plaque. A silver plaque that bears the following inscription. To Frank Sinatra, not because he's a great artist, but rather because through his unselfish devotion to the cause of tolerance in America, he has upheld the highest ideals of good sportsmanship. And now, in order that you may hear Frank Sinatra's speech of acceptance, as he accepts this silver plaque at the New York Paramount Theater, this is Bill Stern switching you across the country from where I'm standing in Indianapolis. The next voice you hear will be Frank Sinatra speaking in person from New York City. Thank you, Bill. I shall always treasure this plaque and what it stands for. I'm not going to make any speeches about this country or about tolerance, but I'd like to tell you one little story that illustrates exactly how I feel. Many years ago in Germany, there lived a family who resented being told just how they must believe in God. And this family finally wanted to worship God as they saw fit. And when that became impossible in Germany, why, they packed up their belongings and sailed for America. Perhaps you're thinking this all happened recently, but it didn't. It happened a long, long time ago. And yet, you know, I think we should be very grateful that this family did come to America, because their name was Eisenhower. And from this family came General Eisenhower. So thank you, Bill, very much for this plaque. However, there are two words in this plaque that please me immensely. They are the words tolerance and sportsmanship. Because to me, they mean the same thing. Thanks again, Bill. And this is Frank Sinatra of the Paramount Theater in New York City, returning you to Bill Stern in Indianapolis. Thank you very, very much, Frank Sinatra. If you are but a dream. Just give me five minutes and I'll have the other number ready. I'll get a smoke. Next number, boys. You bet. Smear Yeah, but ten against one. That's not very fair. Ah, come on. Come, come on. on. Come What's it all about? None of your business. Scared to tell me? No, I'm not as scared. I'll fight Huey. In 1945, MGM loaned Frank Sinatra out to RKO for a short film written by Albert Maltz called The House I Live In. Sinatra played himself, taking a break from a recording session to step outside to smoke a cigarette. He sees several boys attempting to jump a Jewish boy and intervenes. Ah, hold on. I see what you mean. You must be a bunch of those Nazi werewolves I've been reading about. Mister, are you screwy? Not me. I'm an American. Well, what do you think we are? Nazis. Don't call me a Nazi. My father's a sergeant in the army. He's been wounded even. Wounded, huh? Say, I bet he got some of that blood plasma. He was wounded so bad he had to get it three times. Son, anybody in your family ever go to the blood bank? Sure, my mother and my father both. Uh-huh. You know what? I bet you maybe his pop's blood helped save your dad's life. Sinatra simultaneously made an effort to visit schools and talk to teenagers about bigotry, always citing the hurtful words thrown at him as a boy. The house I live in impressed the critics. A reviewer for Q pointed out that 
Not only did Sinatra take his fame seriously, he attempted to do something constructive with it. The short won an honorary Academy Award that year. Religion makes no difference, except maybe to a Nazi or somebody as stupid. Why people all over the world worship God in many different ways. God created everybody. He didn't create one people better than another. There's an era about your father that people should know more about, and that's race relations. He was a pioneer in civil rights. Yes, indeed. The uh, house I live in. Yeah, which, by the way, was another reason why he got into trouble. Because his, he made a short subject. His lectures and the short subject, The House I Live In, appearances at rallies for tolerance, made people list him as communist. Taking Lena Horne to dinner at the Stork Club. Unheard of. Forget about it. Also in 1945, MGM cast Sinatra opposite of Gene Kelly and Catherine Grayson in the Technicolor musical Anchors Away. It garnered several Academy Award wins and nominations, and the song, I Fall in Love Too Easily, sung by Sinatra in the film, was nominated for an Academy Award. But the 1940s would be a tale of two decades for Sinatra. During the war years, he peaked as the most popular recording artist in the country. At the end of the decade, his career would be considered over, even by many of those who he was once closest to. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like... Gazpacho? But gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow! Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to Frank Sinatra. Night and day In the fall of 1945, CBS brought Frank Sinatra back to CBS for a new radio show sponsored by Old Gold Cigarettes. Old Gold presents Songs by Sinatra, premiered Wednesday, September 12, 1945, at 9 p.m. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Old Gold Cigarettes, the treasure of them all, presents Songs by Sinatra. Hi there, everybody, and a merry day after Christmas to you, and welcome to our six days before New Year's Eve party. We've got milk for the youngsters, orange pico tea for the guests desiring something stronger, and a festive board groaning with a load of music. And Axel Boy, speaking of groaning, would you mind grinding while I do a little groaning? By the end of 1945, not only was the war over, as was the AFM strike, Sinatra was back in the studio for Columbia, recording The Voice of Frank Sinatra, 
It was first issued as a set of 478 RPM records totaling eight songs. It also holds the distinction of being the first pop album, 33 and a third, when Columbia premiered Long Playing Vinyl Records in 1948. The tracks were arranged and conducted by Axel Stortel and his orchestra. Flutist John Mayhew and oboist Mitch Miller also contributed. It introduced the idea of a concept album to the general public. It sold for a hefty $2.50, the equivalent of about $30 today. On this Father's Day, June 16th, 1946, we honor the returning veteran. Ladies and gentlemen, we are very happy to present the man who has been chosen radio's Father of the Year. A young man whose sincere devotion to the principles of tolerance and brotherhood has won him honor as a citizen to equal his fame as a singer, Frank Sinatra. Hi, neighbors. I'm very proud to have been chosen radio's Father of the Year so that I can take part in honoring the returning veteran on his Father's Day. The first Father's Day in five At the same years, time, Frank's marriage to Nancy was again on the rocks. Despite George Evans's best efforts, Gossip magazine's published details of Sinatra affairs, with women including Marilyn Maxwell, Lana Turner, and Joy Lansing. Nancy and the kids finally moved out to California to be with Frank. Understanding. You know, that's probably the most important thing of all that we can give to the returned veteran. Understanding of his desire to solve his problems in his own way. Understanding of his difficulties in fitting into his old life. Understanding if he doesn't want to go back to his old ways and wants to strike out on something new. I'm ready for a dress rehearsal. What goes? Huh? I'm trying to find out where my boss is. You're covering up uh, one word there completely. Can we go through the chorus once, please, without Three. the technicalities? Oh, wait a minute, Sinatra. Please, well, let's try the chorus, huh? Let her What I do with my life is of my own doing. I live it the best way I can. I've been criticized for many, many occasions because of acquaintances and what have you. But I don't do those things to have anybody follow me in doing that same thing, is what I mean. Do you think your boiling point is low? Not anymore. It used to be. I think that comes with a normal growing up and the way of living with friends, people with whom you become acquainted. I've always admired people who are gentle and who have great patience. Daddy loses his temper, it's headlines. The fact that he raises millions of dollars for underprivileged children all over the world by giving of his time and his own money, that doesn't rate headlines. But if he gets angry and has an argument with someone, headlines, so you figure it out. I don't understand it at all. Allegations of Sinatra's ties to organized crime reached all the way back to his mother, Dolly. The FBI had begun to keep tabs on him in the early 1940s. In 1942, when Sinatra was to leave Dorsey's band, Buddy Rich, who was once again friends with Sinatra, asked him if he'd been the guy who'd got Rich jumped outside of Child's restaurant. Frank admitted he'd made a phone call. And the 
1946 drew to a close, Sinatra let it be known that the $2,800 he received from Old Gold Cigarettes each week to host Old Gold Presents Songs by Sinatra wasn't nearly up to the singer's standards. He publicly floated the notion of going back to the Lucky Strike hit parade for three times the salary. Old Gold got upset and reminded Sinatra that he still had a year to go on his three-year deal. Frank told his sponsors in the network that he was sick and overworked. He was going to rest up by taking three weeks off in Florida. Actually, Frank had received an invitation to fly to Miami and from there to Havana to perform for some men whom he couldn't refuse. It was a decision that signaled the beginning of a flurry of bad press against Sinatra for the remainder of the decade. At this time, his affair with Lana Turner was filling up the headlines. He had supposedly promised Lana that he was going to divorce Nancy and marry her. Then at the 11th hour, he phoned and told Lana he'd gone back to his wife. Nancy was soon pregnant for a third time. But this time Nancy put her foot down. She stayed home and took care of the kids while Frank was out having the time of his life. Assuming more infidelity, Nancy Sinatra informed Frank that if he went to Miami, she would have an abortion. Frank explained to her he was flying down just to do a benefit concert, not spend time with women. She didn't believe him. He had to go. During Christmas week in 1946, there was a historic meeting of the American Mafia and Cosa Nostra leaders in Havana at the Hotel Nacional, supposedly arranged by Charles Lucky Luciano. The conference was held to discuss important mob policies. It was attended by delegations representing crime families throughout the United States. To welcome Luciano back from exile, all the conference invitees brought Luciano cash envelopes. The official cover story from the Havana conference was that the mobsters were attending a gala party with Frank Sinatra as the entertainment. Sinatra flew to Havana with Al Capone's cousins, Charlie, Rocco, and Joe Fischetti from Chicago. The Havana conference is possibly the most famous La Cosa Nostra meeting in history, and Frank Sinatra was there. Much to his bad luck, Robert Rourke, a widely syndicated columnist, happened to be in Cuba at the same time. Luciano was a Sinatra fan and arranged a meeting with the singer. Robert Rourke was nearby. He also photographed Sinatra with Joe Vachetti. That February, he published three sensational accounts from Havana. They were titled, Shame Sinatra, Lovable Luciano, and The Luciano Myth. Lee Mortimer formally accused the singer of carrying $2 million in small bills to Cuba for the mob. Sinatra maintained for the rest of his life that that was the most ludicrous lie of them all. 
he remained in Havana until February. On Valentine's Day, he cabled Nancy, who was in Acapulco, asking, Will you be my Valentine? But when he finally arrived in Mexico, he received the news. Nancy had indeed had the abortion. She found a doctor in Los Angeles who performed the procedure while Frank was in Cuba. He didn't blame her. He blamed himself. Rather than send Sinatra into a tailspin, his news brought him closer to home, closer to Nancy, and to the kids. Hold on, hold on, stop. This is it. Here it is. By the fall of 1947, Nancy would be pregnant again. Isn't she a beauty? Isn't she a queen? Nicest breeds that I Early spring, Frank's newest seen. film, It Happened in Brooklyn, premiered. He plays Danny Miller, a man who spent four years in the Army wishing he was back in the Brooklyn he knew and loved. But when he returns after the war, Danny finds that the Brooklyn he remembered isn't the Brooklyn he sees. The film co-starred Catherine Grayson, Peter Lawford, and Jimmy Durante. Sinatra's performance received favorable reviews. Well, I suppose you've seen many pictures of Mr. Roosevelt, but I have something that's rather interesting to say about this particular copy of it. I received this picture of the late president after he died, which was rather unusual, you might say, and I was told by Mr. Hannigan later that he thought it was one of the last times that he had ever signed a signature to anything, which is why I'm particularly fond of the picture. Two nights after the premiere of the film, Lee Mortimer, writer for the New York Daily Mirror, conservative Hearst paper, who'd been running a smear campaign against Sinatra, was finishing a late dinner at Ciro's restaurant on Sunset Boulevard, when Frank walked in with an unverified friend, who might have been song plugger Sam Weiss. Mortimer had been accusing him of having both mob ties and Soviet-leaning tendencies. While Mortimer was standing on the steps outside the entrance of the restaurant, Sinatra suddenly emerged and blindsided him, hitting him behind the ear with a right fist and knocking him down. When it was over, Mortimer got up and went to the West Hollywood Sheriff's Office to lodge a complaint. He then began to phone the press. Los Angeles Herald Express columnist Harrison Carroll hurried over to Ciro's and found Frank still at the bar in an explanatory mood. The only time I had any physical contact with a newspaper man was a man who's now dead who said some pretty nasty things about me in a column for about two years, and they were all gross lies. And that didn't bother me so much until he once said several things to me in person. And I, I reached the boiling point, and it was all over. It was an unfortunate incident, but frankly, if he were alive and he said it again, I would do it again, because he was just that kind of a man. But otherwise, all of that is a gross lie. All of this physical jazz is nothing. It doesn't mean anything. I've had people say to me in public places, you're really a tough guy. It was so foreign that I was, uh, in the beginning, when I first started to get it, I thought, I was really shocked. I thought, well, what started all of this thing? Then came the ridiculous accusations and the statements that I was 
consorting with mobsters and gangsters, and that added fire to it after a while. And I just kept resenting it all the time, but I just couldn't stop it. There was no way to stop it. When Sinatra left the restaurant, he called publicist Jack Keller. Keller understood that although Mortimer was unliked by his peers of the press, those same press members would gang up on Sinatra to ensure that newsmen couldn't be punched out so easily. Keller convinced Sinatra to lie, claiming that Morgan had called him a Dago bastard. The next afternoon, while Frank was in the CBS Vine Street studio rehearsing, a deputy sheriff and two investigators from the DA's office came in and arrested him. He was released on $500 bail. Late that night, Frank flew to New York to receive the Thomas Jefferson Award of the Council Against Intolerance in America. He was simultaneously doing coast-to-coast damage control. MGM's co-founder, Louis B. Mayer, was a close ally of William Randolph Hearst. Hearst owned the reported 500 newspapers. Time magazine noted that the story was given so much coverage that it was akin to an attempted political assassination. Meyer ordered Sinatra to bury the hatchet and publicly apologize to Mortimer. On June 4th in Beverly Hills District Court, both Sinatra and Mortimer read statements of apology and satisfaction. Mortimer withdrew his charges and was paid $9,000 by Sinatra, the equivalent to 100k today. However, for the first time since Frank became a star, the public was perhaps beginning to grow tired of him. His second full-length album, Songs by Sinatra, would debut in April and rise as high as number two. On March 11, 1947, Sinatra recorded a version of Mademoiselle. The record reached the Billboard magazine charts on May 10th, peaking at number six on the bestseller chart and number one on the jockey chart. It would be Sinatra's last number one single until 1955. Your Hit Parade, starring Frank Sinatra. Lucky Strike presents Your Hit Parade with Axel Stordahl, the Lucky Strike Orchestra, Ken Lane and the Hit Paraders, and starring Frank Sinatra. When you're down and out, lift up your head and shout, there's gonna be a great day. In 1947, Sinatra recorded 70 sides. On September 6th, he was back as the featured MC of the Lucky Strike Hit Parade on CBS Radio. Axel Stordahl and his orchestra joined Frank on the program. He was promised to be the centerpiece of the show. It was just one major problem. Sinatra could only sing his own songs if they made the hit parade top 10. Fewer and fewer of his songs did so. His yearly income dropped below $1 million for the first time since 1942. No one felt sorry for him. Metronome gave Sinatra's hit parade return lukewarm reviews at best. With his star dimming, right-wing columnist Westwood Pegler went on the attack. Pegler had been an open adversary of both Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt and had opposed the New Deal vociferously. He hammered Frank in his columns all through September, warning the American public of the danger of being a Sinatra fan. On September 26th, he wrote, There is a weird light playing around Sinatra. Hitler affected many Germans much in the same way, and madness has been rife in the world. 
Later, Pegler slammed Sinatra defenders amongst the left and center, stating that these same men and women were part of the communist propaganda machine, bullying the government into staying silent. In 1947, Frank Sinatra was no doubt a 32-year-old unfaithful husband with a short temper, but he was publicly called a communist who somehow also had Italian mob ties, a crime syndicate known for only being out for themselves. It's, uh, Which it's is, a, they were friends of his, right? Yeah, it's a pretty simple thing to understand if you, if you think about American show business. Uh, they were the bootleggers in the 20s and owned the speakeasies, and they went from the speaks to the jazz clubs. Where he and, sang. Yeah, and they all, all of the people I interviewed worked for the same people. You know, you couldn't be in show business in America from the 20s through the 60s without working for these guys or having met them or something. Sinatra had worked around the clock on radio, in song, and on film to develop the fan base he'd cultivated. But now his popularity was being compared to a man that had millions of people killed and whom had died only two years earlier. Frank Sinatra was a draft dodger, a bully, a sex offender, and a crook. He shouldn't be trusted. Perhaps no one could withstand the journalistic slander lobbied at Sinatra in the late 1940s. But his decade of fast living and unsaintly, seemingly arrogant behavior did him zero favors. He was no communist. He was no Hitler. But it didn't matter. The smear campaign was hurting his box office appeal. By the end of 1947, as his in-ground swimming pool shaped like a grand piano was being completed in his Palm Springs home, Sinatra was digging himself a totally different hole. His record sales were falling, and his own erratic behavior continued. Bobby Soxer fans from 1941 were now in their mid-twenties. Many had husbands of their own. They were appalled at Sinatra's disrespect of his and Nancy's marriage. This is F.S. for L.S., Frank Sinatra for Lucky Strike, just back from skating in Central Park. And I must say it was a very interesting experience. No ice. <laughs> Ziggy, send up a 20-size, five-cent piece, will you? It's only On January 1st, 1948, a new AFM strike began. It would last until early December. Production on Sinatra's latest film, The Miracle of the Bells, had wrapped the previous September. He suddenly found himself with more time on his hands. In The Miracle of the Bells, Frank plays a priest, Father Paul. He was loaned out to RKO by MGM's head, Louis B. Mayer, for the film, both as a punishment for Sinatra's frequent bad press and to try to rehabilitate his wanton reputation. Sinatra had no desire to go to Miracle's premiere, but the film producer, Jesse Lasky, reminded the star he was contractually obligated to do so. Sinatra flew to San Francisco for the premiere and behaved well at the premiere itself, but outside of that, he made a scene at the Fairmont Hotel, taking up in the largest suite and ordering 88 Manhattans for room service. They sat in the entrance hall for three days undrank. At 4 a.m., unable to sleep, he ordered a piano be sent up to his suite. Several people had to be awakened to get this request done. The next night, he took 20 people out on the town, then brought them back to the hotel for a party that didn't break up until 7 a.m., after the premiere, he decided he needed to go back to Palm Springs at once. 
Unfortunately, a thick fog had rolled in, and all the planes were grounded. Sinatra and Jimmy Van Heusen took a limousine home, a 500-mile trip that cost RKO over $1,100. On May 31st, all three stars reprised their roles for a Lux Radio Theater adaptation of the film. So that's why I'm here, Father Paul. She wanted to be buried from your church. Now, how much do you charge? I'd, uh, I better tell you first, she wanted a few extras. I'm very proud that this girl wanted to be buried from St. Michael's, Mr. Dunnigan. Please put your money away. I'm sorry, Father. I came in here like a sorehead. It's just that... Well, it's a pleasure to run into a human being again. You ever hear of poverty, Father? Oh, yes. Poverty is an old friend of St. Michael's. Well, I'm down to my last $300. I just thought I'd better warn you. And I've got a favor to ask. Could we have her brought here? I hate the thought of Olga being left in Orloff's place. Of course, she belongs here. Let me phone Orloff, and then you must tell me about Olga. I can see you must have loved her very much. Time magazine declared that Frank Sinatra, looking rather flea-bitten as the priest, acts properly humble, or perhaps ashamed. If Sinatra was ashamed of his life and career, it would have been justified. He was losing his audience, his prestige, and very rapidly, his hair. Trade papers like modern television and radio wondered if Frank Sinatra was finished. One night, Frank and songwriter Sammy Kahn were hanging out on the terrace of Frank's old penthouse apartment at the Sunset Tower. He moved out years before, but held on to it. On this night, Kahn and Sinatra looked down over the Sunset Strip and the lights twinkling above the Hollywood Hills. Kahn pointed across the street to a series of little homes. One of them was owned by Tom Kelly, an interior decorator. Kelly was away. Sammy asked Frank if he knew who was currently occupying the house. Frank said he didn't. It was Ava Gardner. They both laughed and began to yell Ava's name out into the night. And a funny thing happened. As the two drunk men laughed with each other, a curtain drew back. A window opened. Ava stuck her head out and waved. One day, Sinatra asked her out for dinner. Although she knew he was married, she accepted the invitation. They had drinks, dinner, and wonderful conversation deep into the night. And they kissed for a long time. They didn't sleep together. Frank took her home. They said goodnight. It would be months before they saw each other again. Girls, how'd you like to get a love letter that read something like this? February of 1948, Frank sat down with metronome's George T. Simon and spoke about his feelings in the current state of popular music. Sinatra said, I don't think that the music business has progressed enough. There are a lot of people to blame for this. A songwriter in most cases finds he has to prostitute his talents if he wants to make a buck. The publisher is usually a fly-by-night guy anyway, and so to make a fast buck, he buys a very bad song, very badly written. And the recording companies are helping those guys by recording such songs. I don't think 
The few extra bucks in a song that becomes a fast hit makes a difference in the existence of a big record company or a big publishing firm. If they turn them down, it wouldn't do any harm. It would do music some good. Sinatra was finding himself fighting the same fight as many professional artists. The battle between wanting to be in charge of one's own destiny and produce the kind of creative work that makes them proud, while simultaneously earning as much money as they'd like to. By the middle of 1948, Sinatra's earnings were hitting a six-year low. In the early hours of June 20th, Frank and Nancy were playing charades at Toluca Lake with songwriter Jules Stein and his wife when Nancy went into labor. Frank bundled her into his Cadillac and ran every red light between the valley and cedars of Lebanon Hospital. His haste was warranted. Christina Sinatra was born just minutes after Nancy was brought in. It was the first time Frank had been present at the birth of one of his children. Shortly thereafter, he kissed Tina, kissed Nancy, and drove back to Toluca Lake. The three top tunes of the week as determined by your hit parade survey. And here they are, song number three. You know, there's a little fellow with a bill knocking on fame's front door. And here come Ken Lane and the hit paraders to let him in. Here's tune number three, Woody Woodpecker. I just couldn't do it. That's the reason. Six days later on the June 26th episode of the Lucky Strike Hit Parade, Sinatra elected not to sing the Woody Woodpecker song on the air as directed. He had no choice but to sing it on July 10th when the song was number one. That fall, he was again in the poor graces of MGM, getting himself loaned out to RKO. He was going to Palm Springs more and more often. One weekend in late September while out with Jimmy Van Heusen, he again ran into Ava Gardner. They left the party and spent the rest of the evening carousing. When sober the next morning, Frank phoned her and asked her out to dinner properly. Well, are you all set to meet our guest, Frank Sinatra? Am I? <laughs> I see all his pictures and never miss him on the hit parade. I love that boy, love that boy, love that boy. Dorothy, Frank's not a boy. He's a full-grown man. That's even better, ain't it? <laughs> I'm so happy he's coming. I'm overjoyed. I'm overwhelmed. I'm over here. How are you feeling tonight, Frank? Is your voice all right? Well, I think so. Let me see. Duh! <laughs> I am majestically in voice. You ready? Everybody. That October, on Spike Jones's Spotlight Review, Frank's voice was noticeably off. Sinatra's performance opposite of Jane Russell and Groucho Marx in RKO's It's Only Money received poor reviews. He'd made roughly $11 million in the previous six years, but owed the IRS back taxes. He bought himself an apartment at 320 North Carrollwood Drive in Holmby Hills and spent even less time at home. The year-long layoff during the AFM strike in combination with the weekly Your Hit Parade program, had hurt his artistry, confidence, and relationship with Axel Storl. 
early 1949, columnist Earl Wilson ran into Frank Sinatra's publicist George Evans at the Copacabana in New York. Evans confessed to Wilson, Frank is through. A year from now, you won't hear anything about him. He'll be dead professionally. I've been around the country looking and listening. They're not going to see his pictures. They're not buying his records. I can't do it anymore. You know how much I've talked to him about the girls? The public knows about the trouble with Nancy and the other dames, and it doesn't like him anymore. In a year, he'll be through. At the end of February, Frank Sinatra fired George Evans, calling it quits with the man that helped make him the biggest music star in the country. beautiful, Frank. You know, I've got a great idea for you. That sounds interesting. Tell me more, Spike. Well, how would you like a steady job singing with Joan? I'd love it. I've always wanted to sing with Joan. Mary, no! God, let what? go! I simply don't understand it. Of course. The sound is coming from the basement. It's all right. I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast, Twelve Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you? For plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. It's light up time, presented by Lucky Strike. I can be happy, I can be sad, I can be good, or I can be bad. It all depends on you. In the winter of 1949, Frank sucker punched a retired businessman and amateur bartender named Jack Wintermeyer after Wintermeyer couldn't figure out how to make the drink Sinatra wanted. He avoided a lawsuit by agreeing to apologize. At the end of May, Sinatra quit the hit parade. Lucky Strike would swallow the insult and negotiate a new show. His latest album, Frankly Sentimental, released in June, completely failed to chart. But his singles did spend a total of 59 weeks on the charts in 1949, even if none rose above number six. He also co-starred with Gene Kelly in On the Town, a comedy musical about three sailors on a day of shore leave in New York City looking for fun and romance before their 24 hours are up. Sinatra played second fiddle, and Kelly directed the film, which received hugely positive press. And on July 10, 1949, Sinatra went into the studio to record It All Depends on You, Bye Bye Baby, and Don't Cry Joe. It gave a hint 
of the sonic tone that Sinatra would grow into in the 1950s. That September, his new Lucky Strike show, called Light Up Time, premiered on NBC. It was 15 minutes and broadcast from Hollywood every weeknight at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. All that fall, Frank visited Ava's home, deeply in love. During the entire calendar year of 1949, Sinatra laid down only 27 sides. NBC's budget constraints also prevented Sinatra from using a string section, and Axel Stordal wasn't part of the production. The quarter-hour show was rushed and superficial. In early December, Sinatra took Ava Gardner to New York for the premiere of On the Town. While there on December 8th, they attended the Broadway premiere of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. So Meanwhile in California, Nancy Sinatra had known about Ava Gardner for months and decided she'd had enough, confronting Frank at Christmas. Frank asked her to wait until after the holidays to talk about it. She relented. In early January, Frank flew back to New York, this time to meet with George Evans. He asked Evans to help him fix his career and personal life. It was a tall order. Evans agreed to be hired again. When Sinatra got back to California, Nancy, accusing him of having been on another affair excursion, threw him out. Associates came to grab his belongings. It was here that his real friends began to show themselves. Ladies and gentlemen, 1949 is gone and forgotten. But to Jack Benny, 1950 will always be remembered. Because 1950 is what he paid for his new suit. And here he is, Jack Benny! Thank you, thank you. Hello again, this is Jack Benny talking. And Don, I want to ask you something. How did you know that I bought a new suit? I heard it on Dreer Prusa. <laughs> You heard it on what? Wait a minute, I want to hear this. You heard it, you heard it on what? I heard it on Drew Pearson's broadcast. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, he got the award for being the best announcer in the world. In the midst of scandal, Jack Benny had Frank on his program on January 8th, 1950. It was an episode called Murder at Romanoffs, named after the comedy skit. But it's famous because of a Don Wilson flub. Frank was received warmly by the studio audience. I want to look around. Now, nobody leave this room. There's been a murder now, committed. Now, don't raise your voice, Chief. You remember, this is the classiest joint in town. Some class. Look at that broom leaning against the table. <laughs> well, that's no broom. That's Frank Sinatra. Well, I'm going over and talk to him. Say, you. Are you Frank Sinatra? Won't you tell me when we will meet again Sunday, Monday, I'll be satisfied with you by my side. Oh, stop showing off. <laughs> Quiet, O'Day. Where's O. Wilson? In the old kitchen. Where else? <laughs> you go look for clues. Now, listen, Sinatra. What were you doing at the time of the murder? I was eating lunch. A likely story. What did you have? A raisin. 
One raisin for lunch? Boy, am I stuffed. <laughs> I want to know. Say, Captain O'Benny, that's a beautiful new suit you're wearing. Cost $19.50, didn't it? Yes, how did you know? Last Friday, I sang Don't Cry Joe. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, tell me, Frank, what do you know about the murder of Carlton Quince? Well, personally, I think Romanoff did it. Oh, you do? Well, I'll call him back again. Feeling a renewed sense of purpose, Evans and Sinatra booked concerts in Houston at the Shamrock Hotel. On Thursday, January 26th, with Sinatra feeling good about his professional prospects. He landed in El Paso, Texas, en route to Houston. There was a message waiting for him at the airport. He must call New York immediately. When he did, he found out that George Evans had died of a heart attack. He was 48. In case you don't remember the salutation now being offered by Cousin Kanabi, it's called Dear Mr. Sinatra. A little letter addressed to me right after my Dorsey days. And since Sam is addressing me, I am answering. What's on your grand mind, Cuz? Oh, so you'd like me to take a little ride with you. Very happy to, Cuz, because I just happen to like the vehicle you're driving. So leave us amble along with Cole Porter's It's All Right With Me. It's the wrong time and the wrong... I get disappointed. I don't get angry because I figure that uh, why waste my energy if they want to make fools of themselves, but I'm disappointed. But fortunately, I don't think that's happened in my case too many times, unless I don't know. I'm ignorant, completely ignorant of it, you know. Did you read that book about you, by the way? Yes. So much of it is it's, it's such so far out of what actuality that it's scary when I read something. Because it's almost things. all secondhand. Yeah, secondhand and thirdhand, you know, and things like that. In the, wrong the myth about Sinatra's fall in the late 1940s is that it all happened at once. It was really a six-year cocktail of dreadful luck, bad timing, and arrogantly self-inflicted wounds. In 1950, another kind of inquiry into domestic enemies began. Elaborate organizational charts were presented, showing territories that were divvied up by the mob. The word mafia became part of the American lexicon, and the photograph of Sinatra in Havana with Joe Fischetti was shown again and again. Sinatra's connections to the mob, real or imaginary, were exasperated with heroin plaguing inner cities. Crime rates soared, and an urban diaspora began. Many female fans felt that Sinatra had flaunted Ava Gardner in January and was behaving cruelly towards Nancy. It only alienated Sinatra further. Ava Gardner got threatening letters from many women, even a priest. She was called a hussy, a whore, a homewrecker, and a deviant. Nancy Barbado Sinatra and Frank Sinatra announced their separation on Valentine's Day, February 14, 1950. This time, the catalyst for the split was Nancy, and most of the public believed there was no going back for Frank. She filed a suit for separate maintenance, alleging that Frank had treated her with extreme cruelty and caused her grievous mental suffering. MGM fired him two days later.
In the spring of 1950, Sinatra was booked at the Copacabana nightclub in New York. The crowds were hot for him, but near the end of the eight-week engagement, the thing he feared most happened. He lost his voice. Skitch Henderson later recalled that as he kicked the band into gear for It All Depends on You, Sinatra opened his mouth to sing, and not a sound came out. The official diagnosis was a submucosal hemorrhage, and Sinatra was ordered to be silent for ten days. I've never been bitter about it, but it happens and it can happen to everybody. I saw anybody. When I had some dark days, a lot of my so-called friends disappeared. Everybody disappeared. It didn't bother me. As a matter of fact, it taught me a lesson to become a little more tolerant with people because I tried to understand why they did what they did, and I understood later on. I worked it out in my own mind. They you were insecure them. themselves, and they didn't know how to handle Absolutely. helping somebody else. The newspapers took particular glee in reporting the story with headlines like Bali Too High, Voice Voiceless, and copy like Frank Sinatra's voice deserted him Tuesday as his doctor said it was because the crooner tried to make it do the impossible. Hit a soprano note. Sinatra went to Barcelona to be with Ava Gardner. They argued, made up, argued again, and made up again, something that would become commonplace in their relationship. He left early after the papers reported that he'd missed Mother's Day, and he went to visit Nancy and the children. Nancy gave an icy reception. That night, he flew home to California with Bob Hope, who offered the singer a job. There was a very dark period in my career, about 1951, and thanks to a, a wonderful fellow named Bob Hope, very frankly, and there's no secret about it, I could hardly get myself a job in those days. And Mr. Hope gave me a spot to do in one of his television shows, one of the early one-hour so-called uh, extravaganzas. Last Saturday night I got married Me and my wife settled down Now me and my wife You look just wonderful and I really owe you an apology After I saw you on the screen I have to throw away a lot of skinny jokes Do tell <laughs> Really I mean it I, 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 No I mean it sincerely you, you look you have a body and you're, you're breathing and everything You do and just think, last week I called you the pooped-out pinza. <laughs> and the breadstick with lungs. I owe you an apology. Well, I think that's real nice of you, Bob. And since you did apologize, I won't use the joke I brought about you. You had a joke about me? Yes, I was going to say that the reason that you're such a relaxed comedian is because when you sit down, so much comes to rest. Good <laughs> night. What do you got in there, a writer? Frank Sinatra made his television debut on Bob Hope's May 27, 1950 program. TV was still in its infancy. The reviews were lukewarm, but when his light-up time program finished the following week, CBS decided they wanted to create two new vehicles for Sinatra in the fall. New, separate radio and TV programs. CBS signed Sinatra to a staggering five-year million-dollar contract to produce a TV variety show and MC a radio program. With more free time on his hands, Sinatra went back into the studio in June, teaming with Mitch Miller. Their first song together was the folksy Goodnight Irene. He next met Ava Gardner in London, where he performed at the Palladium to raucous crowds packed with teenage girls. 
The English media loved him. Harold Hobson, the London Sunday Times distinguished drama critic, wrote that people who simply put Frank down as the voice are missing the point. It's not the voice, but the smile that does such enormous, such legendary execution. The shy, deprecating smile with a quiver at the corner of the mouth. Here is an artist who, hailing from the most rowdy and self-confident community in the world, has elected to express the timidity that can never be wholly driven out of the boastful heart. To a people whose ideal manlyhood is husky, full-blooded, and self-reliant, he has dared to suggest man is still a child, frightened and whimpering in the dark. In August, he recorded Life is So Peculiar for a new Bing Crosby film called Mr. Music and worked for the first time with arranger and conductor Percy Faith. On September 28th, Judge Orlando H. Rhodes awarded Nancy custody of the three children, the Holmby Hills home and its furnishings, a 1950 Cadillac, 34 shares of stock in the Sinatra Music Corp, and $75,000 of the first 200000 Frank earned annually. Frank didn't contest the action. Ava was on her way to film Showboat and very upset. She wanted to get married, but Frank wasn't sure if Nancy would ever give him an official divorce. It was against Catholicism to do so. That fall, he moved to New York for his new programs. On October 7, 1950, the Frank Sinatra show made its debut on CBS television. Yes, sir, it's your full of a Saturday night watchman. I just checked all the doors and the windows and they're all locked, so there's no use, you can't get out. You just have to sit there and take it. All right, Axe, let's give it to him. <laughs> When you're smiling, when you're smiling. The radio show called Meet Frank Sinatra debuted on October 29th. It combined songs, interviews with audience members, and guests. Critics panned them both, though they called Sinatra a surprisingly good actor. His voice was also getting stronger again. The show cost CBS a reported $41,500 per episode and they had trouble finding any sponsor. Bulova would later sign on for the first half of the program, but Sinatra's singles were struggling. None would go higher than number eight until 1953. And his album, Swing and Dance with Frank Sinatra, released on October 16th, failed to chart, making it the third consecutive full-length LP to do so. It would be his last album with Columbia Records. His first three singles of 1951 failed to chart, and both his CBS programs were struggling mightily. By July of 1951, his radio show was canceled. Rejected by Hollywood, he turned to Las Vegas and made his debut at the Desert Inn in September of 1951. He also blasted publicly Mitch Miller for a string of unsuccessful singles like Come On All My House with Rosemary Clooney. For the entire calendar year of 1951, Frank Sinatra wouldn't make a single guest appearance of note on the radio. Nancy Sinatra eventually did file for divorce. It became legally final on October 29, 1951. What did a divorce do to an 11-year-old and the oldest of the three? 
I think the, the two things that were really sad about it was, first of all, my mother, of course, was very sad, which worried me a lot. I didn't know how to help her. I was too little. And it was another woman involved, right? Yes. Ava Gardner. Yeah. Whom how I grew to love, that? by the way. What? Whom I grew to love dearly. And the other thing was that it was such a public thing. I mean, nobody got divorced in those days. It was a scandal, especially if there was another woman involved. And your father was at the low ebb then, too. Sort of, if you I mean, can call it that. He was trailing her around, right? Yeah. She'd make a movie, he'd follow, he'd be at the set every day. We didn't see him as much then, of course. He was always a phone call away. I remember wearing penny loafers with dimes in them, you know, and I always had the phone number wherever he was. He always checked in with us. Didn't leave us alone. He was a, was and is a very good father, right? Very good An father. An attentive father, right? You would think that someone that big gets removed from his kids. He never was? No, one of the things that makes him as great as he is is his ability to listen. Frank and Ava Gardner were married in a small ceremony less than two weeks later on November 7th. I guess I didn't even want to like her, but it's Actually. hard not to like her. I mean, she was, first of all, the most beautiful woman I had ever seen and still has that title in my book. I mean, she's just the best in terms of physical beauty. But the other thing, the best thing about her was she was great fun. She was fun to be with. We used to swim together. She would dry her hair in front of a wall heater. Spunky, rough and tumble, great fun. Gave me my first lipstick, you know. But then I would feel kind of guilty about that and I wouldn't tell my mom about how much fun I'd had because I didn't want to hurt her feelings. So, but otherwise it was pretty good. And I knew Ava later on as well. After Frank and she broke mm -hmm. up? Yeah, we would still get together for dinner, you know, with Dad, and she was even more fun then. She'd hoist a few, and then she'd be hysterically funny, you know. Explain. He was wanting the role of Maggio in From Here to Eternity, and she said to Harry Cohn one night at dinner, you know who'd be great for that part, don't you? That son-of-a-bitch husband of mine. Although Nancy and Frank's marriage was over, the friendship that joined them together in the first place became renewed. In the coming years, it was common for Frank to come over to spend time with Nancy and the kids and sleep on the couch. As far as Frank and Ava's marriage, it would be a tumultuous two and a half years of passionate, visceral, exhaustive emotion. They loved each other dearly, but their insecurities fed each other's, and their need for control drove the relationship to become one of power plays. All right, buddy, the hospital is two blocks away. Now, easy, Jared. If this boy doesn't need the hospital... You're right, Dean. Hey, buddy, it's four blocks to Forest Lawn. Hey, Dean, I don't know who this guy is, but I like him. This kid makes me look good, you know. Uh, Frankie, he's my partner, Jerry Lewis. Go over and introduce yourself to him. Well, all right. You sure he won't bite? Uh, Jerry, I'd like to introduce myself. I'm, uh... Let Dean do it, kid. You better lie down. Now, listen, Apehead. I'm Frank Sinatra. You mean you're Frank Sinatra, the singer on radio and television and picture star? That's right. Hey, is it true that you stand in for carrots when they photograph salads? 
Well, I... I mean, uh, when mosquitoes bite you, do they get anything more than practice? Well, gosh, I don't... Hey, now, tell it to you, can you touch your hands over your head without being threaded? Hey, no. Just a minute. How long do you think I have to stand here for these insults? Just as long as we get laughs, Frank. <laughs> now, Jerry, this is no way to act towards Frank Sinatra. Yeah, well... <laughs> yeah, well, what makes you think he's Frank Sinatra anyway? If he was Sinatra, he certainly wouldn't be here with us. No, where would I be? Home with Ava. <laughs> financial difficulty following the divorce and his career decline. Sinatra was forced to borrow $200,000 from Columbia to pay his back taxes after MCA refused to front the money. On January 18, 1952, Frank Sinatra made a guest appearance on NBC's Martin and Lewis show. He was close friends with the comedic duo. In fact, after Martin and Lewis acrimoniously split, they had no contact for almost two decades. It was Frank Sinatra who reunited them on live TV. Did you ever have a feud going with anybody for that length of time? I don't think so. Yeah? No. <laughs> no. No, my fuse lasts about two minutes. You're quick to anger, but also you're quick to get it out, I That's true. Yeah. I guess we're just born that way. Some guys are, some guys aren't. You yeah. know what I mean? Well, the press occasionally, I mean, seem to always print the things that make good copy, or they think make good copy. They very seldom print, and I don't say this because you're here, because I don't have to uh, puff you up at all, but they never mention the, the things that entertainers do for charity and um, raising money for boys' clubs and hospitals and et cetera, but they always do if you're in some kind of a... if you happen to brush somebody leaving a bar or something like that. Well, I've never done anything like that. No, I just... Or, um, I think... If I'm going to brush anybody, he's going to get knocked down. I think... <laughs> and I think, uh, I think the time you drove over the welcome wagon lady, I think that... Uh, I think that should have... In March, Sinatra appeared with Danny Kaye, Groucho Marx, and George Burns on Jack Benny's CBS radio show from Palm Springs. Well, George, Frankie, and Groucho. Hello, fellas. Hello. Hello. Hello, that's brilliant dialogue. Huh? <laughs> well, welcome to the show, fellas. And if you say the magic word, you get a bottle of suntan oil. <laughs> say, Jack, that reminds me. Huh? Jack, what? That reminds me. Huh? That bottle of suntan oil you sold me was much too greasy, and boy, was I embarrassed. Why? What happened? Well, yesterday when I put some on, I slipped right out of my suit. <laughs> no, the next month. Universal Pictures' semi-autobiographical Meet Danny Wilson, starring Sinatra and Shelley Winters, debuted to middling reviews. Sinatra even played the Paramount in New York to help promote the film, but couldn't fill the theater. The headline from the New York World-Telegram and Sun was Gone on Frankie in 42, Gone in 52. CBS finally pulled the plug on Frank's TV show in April. Word on the street was that CBS had lost a million dollars on the series. I wasn't paying enough attention to my job at the time. I think I was tired. It's not an excuse, it's a fact. I think I was weary because I had worked tremendously for the years preceding that period. Worked constantly, 300 days a year or more in many instances. And I was traveling constantly and just doing all kinds of work. And I had a personal problem, which I will not go into. When I was ready and I had had enough rest or I took time to have all of the cobwebs blown out of my head, I went back to work. I changed record companies, changed attorneys, changed accountants, changed picture companies, and changed my clothes. And 
just went right back to work again. He was dropped by MCA. Frank now had to take his own bookings. The only engagements he could scrape together were a couple of concerts in Hawaii. Maybe it would be the change of scenery he needed. Ava Gardner was supposed to go to Mexico to begin filming Sombrero. Frank suggested she come to Hawaii instead. MGM suspended her without pay and benefits for repeated infractions. Frank played to a few hundred tourists in a tent. He wore flowers around his neck. It was the rock bottom he needed. It's the aftermath of the fall that changed Sinatra. He'd been publicly flattened from every angle. On the plate ride home, Ava and Frank quarreled. But when they stopped, he picked up a copy of a book he'd been reading by James Jones, From Here to Eternity. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcast from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. I read the book when Jimmy Jones wrote the book, and I had read a synopsis in the book section of either the New York Times or some paper. Obviously, I went out and I got the book. I was just interested in what he was writing about. I had no idea what content was in people and when I read the book I fell in love with the role of Maggio and I thought also to myself I'd known a hundred kids like this guy I was brought up with him in New Jersey. In 1952 Frank Sinatra released eight singles none topped the charts at higher than number 19 four failed to chart altogether. Columbia's A&R executive Mitch Miller claimed he couldn't give away the singer's records. By this point he and Sinatra had a very public feud. People like Joe Stafford disagreed that it was Sinatra's fault. Well, let's put it in two words, Mitch Miller. Mitch had a lot of talent about him. I mean, the only thing he didn't have was the ability to fit the song to the person. I just don't think you give Joe Stafford's voice Chow Willie to sing. Mm -hmm. It doesn't fit. I'm not at all against a, quote, novelty, unquote, song. I've done those successfully. Temptation. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. I don't mind that at all. But some of the material that Mitch handed out was, was pretty rotten. Sinatra spent a large portion of 1952 as one half of the toxic marriage with Ava Gardner. Both were devoted, but neither was faithful. Both loved and hated each other at the same time. They would spend days at each other's throats, or as far away from each other as possible only to passionately reunite and begin the cycle once again. Various substances were involved. Sinatra was drinking heavily. In November, Ava Gardner had an abortion. That summer, Columbia Records announced they wouldn't renew Sinatra's contract. 
His last studio recording for Columbia, Why Try to Change Me Now, was recorded in New York on September 17, 1952. Why try to change me now? Near the end of 1952, it seemed Sinatra was finished. He had been dropped by MGM, Columbia, and MCA. He was on his own. When the news broke in the trade papers that Columbia was to, had bought it and they were to make a film of it, I began listening to people talking about it and finding out who had they cast and who will they cast. Finally, it came down to the short strokes, and they hadn't cast Maggio yet. They cast Bert Lancaster as Warden and uh, Deborah Carr. I uh, called Harry Cohn, who was then among us, and he was uh, head of the studio. And he said, well, kid, he said, you know, you're a singer and uh, Bobby Sachs And I said, yeah, I said, but why should you lock me into that kind of a position? He said, no, he said, you know, I love you, but uh, I don't know. He said, let me think about it. So I left. Buddy Adler, who was the executive producer, I talked to Buddy about it. And he said, everybody wants to play the role. And I said, naturally. And then it went all the way down the line of people I had spoken to, and I had nobody said yes or no. And then one day I heard that they had tested Eli Wallach, and I figured I was dead. Because he's my friend to begin with, and a hell of an actor. I had never done a dramatic role. I thought, he's a cinch and he'd be marvelous. Although Ava Gardner and Sinatra spent a large portion of their time arguing, she had great respect for Frank's talent. She, too, pushed Columbia Pictures president Harry Cohn to give Frank a shot in the film. With production about to start, the role of Maggio was Wallach's to have. But the last minute, he decided to star in a Broadway production of Camino Real at the National Theater on West 41st Street. Maggio was once again available. Several months went by. I had a call from one of my agents. <laughs> I said, would you like to make a screen test? And I said, I would love to do a screen test. So I went and I did a screen test, and I didn't hear anything for several weeks. Oh, the agony. Yeah. Meantime, I went about my business trying to find another movie to do. Then I got a call that they decided they wanted to give me the role. Uh, however, the budget was pretty small at that stage. They had spent most of their money. And I said, it's okay, I'll pay Harry Cohn. <laughs> If you let me do the picture, which is true. And he laughed about it. They said, they want you to do the part, but they want to give you $8,000 to do the part. I said, deal. The From Here to Eternity cast had tremendous depth with Burt Lancaster, Montgomery Clift, Phil Ober, Deborah Kerr, Ernest Borgnine, and Donna Reed among the performers. On March 13, 1953, before Sinatra left to shoot, he met with Capitol Records Vice President Alan Livingston and signed a seven-year recording contract. His first session for Capitol took place at KHJ Studio C on Melrose Avenue in Los Angeles, with Axel Storrell conducting. The session produced four recordings, including I'm Walking Behind You, Sinatra's first Capitol single. It would climb to number seven, his highest charter in three years. Then, he left to go on location in Hawaii. 
From Here to Eternity takes place in Hawaii in late 1941. A private, Pruitt, played by Clift, is cruelly punished by his captain, played by Ober, for not boxing on his unit's team. While the captain's wife, played by Deborah Kerr, and second-in-command, Warden, played by Lancaster, are falling in love. Pruitt is supported only by his closest friend, Private Angelo Maggio, played by Sinatra. And because of which, Maggio has a beef with Staff Sergeant James R. Judson, played by Borgnine. Maggio and Judson almost come to blows over Judson's piano play. And later, in this scene, Judson provokes Maggio by taking a photograph of Maggio's sister from him, kissing it, and whispering in Pruitt's ear. Who's the broad? It's my sister. Maggio smashes a bar stool over Judson's head. Judson pulls a switchblade. But then, Warden intervenes. You hit me! Yeah, and I'm about to do it again, too. Boy, you dirty wop. If you all want to fight, take it outside. I'm going to cut this wop's heart out. Anybody steps in here, I give it to him first. Maggio later gets sent to the stockade for six months for having drunkenly abandoned his post. Judson is in charge of the stockade. He abuses Maggio mercilessly. Maggio escapes, finds Pruitt, tells him the story, and dies in his arms. Out for blood, huh? You puke your guts out at the sight of a dead man. Put down that stool. Pruitt kills Judson, but is wounded in doing so. The film reaches its crescendo as the Japanese attack on the morning of December 7th. Pruitt dies during the attack. News of the film's potential soon began to trickle through the trade papers. Sinatra returned to KHJ on April 30th for his first recording session ever with Nelson Riddle. From Here to Eternity was released on August 5th, 1953. The entire cast and production crew received tremendous praise, but perhaps none received praise higher than Sinatra. Variety said, Frank Sinatra scores a decided hit as Angelo Maggio, a violent, likable Italo-American GI. While some may be amazed at this expression of Sinatra's talent versatility, it will come as no surprise to those who remember the few times he has had a chance to be something other than a crooner in films. John McCartan of The New Yorker concurred, writing that the film reveals that Frank Sinatra, in the part of Mr. Cliff's best friend, who winds up in the stockade, is a first-rate actor. Burt Lancaster later said that Sinatra's fervor, his bitterness, had something to do with the character of Maggio, but also with what he had gone through the last number of years. A sense of defeat and the whole world crashing in on him. They all came out in that performance. I like films. You were a natural actor, weren't you? I mean, I, think so. I never studied. You know, I never went to any, any of the schools or anything like that. I just felt that if you learn your words properly, like you know your name. First of all, if you believe, when you've taken the job, you obviously believe in what you're about to do. 
and then learn the words properly that's your sense. If you have any brains at all, you should be able to do it very well. Why? I don't know. I thought that acting is, a, is play acting like we did when we were kids, but suddenly you've grown up and it's for real. And then you become immersed in what you're playing, too. You also... I made myself think that I was really that guy on any film I did, comedy or, or whatever it might have been. With a gross of $30.5 million, equating to earnings of $12.2 million, From Here to Eternity was not only one of the top-grossing films of 1953, but one of the ten highest-grossing films of the decade. It would be nominated for 12 Academy Awards. Now, Frank Sinatra, transcribed as Rocky Fortune. NBC presents Frank Sinatra, starring as that footloose and fancy-free young gentleman, Rocky Fortune. Did I ever tell you about the time I got mixed up in a plot to murder Santa Claus? Yeah. It all started when I answered a Christmas ad for a department store. The ad said, young man of good character is auxiliary store detective and other duties. Two-week employment. So, next day I am an auxiliary shamus for Crack and Bomb's department store. Thanks to From Here to Eternity, Sinatra was again on the rise. He was, however, still broke. NBC Radio presented two new radio opportunities for Frank. On October 6, 1953, at Radio City West on Sunset and Vine, Frank Sinatra taped the first episode of a new detective series called Rocky Fortune. The show premiered that Tuesday evening at 9.30. Sinatra played the title character, anglicized from Rocco Fortunato. It was hard-boiled in the vein of Pat Novak for hire. Each week, Fortune went out on a new job assignment. Over the show's 25-week run, Rocky would find work as a process server, a museum tour guide, oyster shucker, cabbie, bodyguard, the social director for a Catskills resort. Oh, and one other thing. Yeah? At lunch hour... You will relieve Santa Claus. You mean put he chased skirts, oh, got himself knocked out, <laughs> helped kids fact, in need, in exactly and somehow uh, always managed to come through exactly relatively unscathed. By the autumn of 1953, the marriage between Ava Gardner and Frank was in shambles. Neither was ever fully faithful to each other. It seemed that neither could ever be alone. During Frank's fall, when his drinking was at an all-time high, it was Ava who bore the brunt of his depression. They would throw each other's clothes, books, and records out of windows. The police had to be called more than once. Gossip columns had a field day, following their every move, tracking the time they spent together and apart. 
she'd had an abortion and a miscarriage. In 1951 and 52, when Frank's career was in trouble, it was Ava that held the power. When Ava was filming Mogambo in 1953, Frank followed her there for a time. Their love was real, even if it was unhealthy. Ava always called him Francis, and once gave him a St. Francis of Assisi charm that he wore for the rest of his life. I think I became a whole man when I was about mid-30s. the middle 30s, I began to see things in a different angle, and I found that I became more tolerant in people. After Sinatra's appearance as Maggio, power had shifted in their relationship. But three weeks after Rocky Fortune's premiere, on October 29, 1953, MGM officially announced Frank and Ava's separation. By most accounts, it was Ava who left Frank. Their marriage wasn't working. This was the only way she could retain her power. Frank was in Hollywood on November 5th and 6th to record songs with Nelson Riddle for his first full-length Capitol Records LP. Next, he was on his way to New York to tape shows for syndication for another new radio program. To be perfectly frank, Sinatra. 15 transcribed minutes, the very best time for the very best guy in the business, Frank Sinatra. Lots of music, couple of words. Okay, Maggio, shape up. Yes, sir. Roger Wilco and all other expressions of agreement, sir. Hey, we got this pleasant studio, got a turntable and some records, got a live five-piece Philharmonic standing by, so I can spin the discs or make with the voice as the spirit moves me. Feeling simply splendid voice at the moment, so gentlemen, sound as big and as enormous as you can. There are many, many crazy things that will keep me loving you. NBC's second radio opportunity for Frank that fall was a new version of his own show called To Be Perfectly Frank. It premiered on November 10th, 1953. It was broadcast twice per week at 8.15 p.m. Sinatra spun records, sang songs, and gave a few insights and platitudes. He was backed by a five-piece combo. Five years earlier, a show like this with someone of Sinatra's caliber would have had a tremendous budget. To be perfectly frank, came to radio at an odd time. Frank Starr was once again cresting, but the golden age of radio was dying. At first, a sponsor couldn't even be found. Recording in the week following his separation from Gardner, it was said that Frank was in a sort of fever, living on coffee and cigarettes instead of food, while he canned episode after episode stockpiling shows so that he could go back to Ava. He was distraught and stuck in New York. The premiere of To Be Perfectly Frank on November 10th was supposed to be a live show. Frank blew it off. NBC had to scramble and play one of the tape shows instead. The network suits were unhappy and there was rumblings of legal action. But if anyone had learned anything about Frank Sinatra by the fall of 1953, it was that he always put his own priorities above those of the people he was working for when he felt he needed to. There may be some other gal besides Lena Horn who walks out on the nightclub floor and hushes the place so even that the falling crockery says, shh. I say there may be some other gal, but the most is Lena Horn. On November 16th, 
it was announced that Ava would be playing the lead opposite Humphrey Bogart and Edmund O'Brien in The Barefoot Contessa. She'd only be paid $60,000 for three months' work. But much like Sinatra with Eternity, Ava was in the poor graces of Hollywood studios and needed the work to re-establish herself as a reliable, talented leading lady. A couple of days later, in a desperate play to get her attention, Frank slit his left wrist and attempted suicide. Jimmy Van Heusen found them and rushed to Mount Sinai Hospital. It was covered up in the press as a bout of exhaustion. Worried about their client's fragility, Frank's new agency, William Morris, assigned him a shadow. Frank flew to California to have dinner with Ava, her sister, and her brother-in-law. The marriage was over. Walter Winchell soon reported that Frank would spend Thanksgiving on November 26th with Nancy and the kids. You know, Harold, there's one fellow that sings your song better than anyone else. Lately he's become a dramatic actor. Pretty good, too. Frank Sinatra. Three days after Thanksgiving, Frank, wearing a tuxedo, walked out on stage during the Colgate Comedy Hour TV special, hosted by Eddie Cantor. He sung, Come Rain or Come Shine, I've Got the World on a String, and That Old Black Magic. Fairy tales can come true, it can happen to you. On December 9th, he was back at the KHJ Studios in Los Angeles recording with Nelson Riddle. Riddle had a song he wanted Frank to try. Nat King Cole had passed on it, but Riddle felt it was a good song for Frank. Early in the morning hours of December 10th, Frank recorded Young at Heart. When it was released as a single in early 1954, it would go to number two on the charts. And when Frank's new LP, Songs for Young Lovers was released in February. It would go to number three. Now, ladies and gentlemen, pursuant with our established policy of always being first with the latest, we now present the gentleman who last Thursday night won the Academy Award for the Best Supporting Actor for his performance of Maggio in the motion picture From Here to Eternity. Mr. Frank Sinatra. Thank you, Dean. Here, Frank, now, just a minute. Let me make you comfortable here. Let me take your Oscar. I'll put it over here on the table. Uh, 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 don't drop it. <laughs> what are you carrying the Oscar around for, anyhow? Well, it isn't raining, and I can't carry an umbrella. <laughs> get a cane or something. You get this thing all tarnished. Honestly, Frank, I'm certainly happy that you grabbed it. Well, it's wonderful, and I'd like to tell everyone listening that I'm really thrilled to receive this honor, Bing, and also that I'm very grateful. Well, I know you are. If I'm not me, I never lift another lasagna. <laughs> You can lift the lasagna? One at a time, never a whole dish. <laughs> well, Frank, speaking of lasagna and Lola Lola Brigida and other Italian delicacies... I'll On March 25th, 1954, Frank Sinatra won the Best Supporting Actor Oscar 
for his role as Maggio and From Here to Eternity. On the Sunday's bookending the 26th Annual Academy Awards of 1954, Frank was a guest on Bing Crosby's General Electric radio program. On this latter program, from March 28th, Frank talks and jokes about his experience. Frank and Bing are both at the heights of their comedic bantering in this episode. Tootsie is 250 pounds of pure love. Well, just a dash of cognac, too. Tell me, Frank, were you nervous when you went to the big dudes at the Pantages Theater last Thursday night? I was delirious, too, Naturally. Bing. All the excitement, the uh, searchlights, the crowds, and the glamour, and the shops, the cotto sound, the fingernails being nibbled. Oh, yes. They follow the banter with a trio of American standards and medley, in which both of the men's voices are in rare form. Not to intentionally bring this interesting discussion to a close, but would you like to sing a song for us now? Well, I don't know. Should I sing a song or recite something from Hamlet? <laughs> I think Hamlet might be a little ponderous, Frank, a little heavy, yes. Why don't you... Two days later, Rocky Fortune aired its last episode, called The Boarding House Double Cross. To be perfectly frank, would wrap up its run in July of 1955. Frank Sinatra wasn't back. He was somewhere new altogether, with a deeper voice, a fedora, and quieter, more sleek attire. Through the end of the decade, Frank would throw himself into his work. In the 1950s, he'd release 11 non-Christmas albums for Capitol Records. Three would peak at number one, and 10 of the 11 would rise as high as number three. While he might have been 4F during World War II, Frank Sinatra had been to hell and back. And perhaps, most importantly, he'd learned that, no matter what, he'd be okay. And it was something that, ten years earlier, in 1945, he tried to assure returning veterans would happen to them, too. Tonight, we bring you a special FBI presentation commemorating the fourth anniversary of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Stretching tonight from the quiet meadows of France, the hillsides of Italy, and across the sands of North Africa to the jungle islands of the Pacific, are gardens of little white crosses. Next time on Breaking Walls, it's December of 1945, and the men and women who fought in World War II are coming home. It's their first civilian holiday in five years. It was a time of celebration and a time of remembrance. More than 400,000 young U.S. soldiers were killed before their time in the four preceding years, and another three-fifths of a million were wounded. We'll examine how America celebrated Christmas and Hanukkah, and hear what was on the air. And old Blue Eyes himself might make an appearance or two. The reading material used in tonight's episode was The Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio by John Dunning Why Sinatra Matters by Pete Hamill Frank, The Voice by James Kaplan and Museum of Broadcast Communications Encyclopedia of Radio by Christopher H. Sterling 
Lots and lots of interviews in today's episode. Frank Sinatra was with Walter Cronkite in 1965, Johnny Carson in 1976, Arlene Francis in the early 1980s, and Larry King in 1988. Nancy Sinatra was with Larry King in 1995. Chuck Shaden interviewed Ken Carpenter and Carol Carroll. Both of these conversations were recorded on February 17, 1975. To listen to many complete interviews Chuck conducted throughout his career, please go to speakingofradio.com. Bob Eberly was with Arnold Dean. Hear that full interview and many others at goldenage-wtic.org. Joe Stafford was with Matthew Feinstein for Joe Stafford's Ballad of the Blues. Gary Moore and Andre Baruch spoke to Westinghouse in 1970. Les Tremaine and Jack Brown were featured from their 1986 history of radio called Please Stand By. Frank Sinatra's appearance on The Fred Allen Show in 1937 comes via Jerry Haindages. Visit his site at otrsite.com. I've been visiting since 2002. There was too much music in this episode to credit it all here, but the compilation album Frank Sinatra, A Voice on Air, was incredibly helpful during the research, and I'd recommend it to any fan of Sinatra's early career work. And by the way, Breaking Walls is now on Spotify. If you listen to music there, like I do, you can easily subscribe by searching for us in the podcasts. As always, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Join the Party, the Fireside Mystery Theater, 12 Chimes It's Midnight, and the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society. Check them all out on iTunes, or search for them on the interwebs. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gaspin. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. And if you're in California this weekend, and you know of Spurdback, then you know that Spurdback, the Society to Preserve and Encourage Radio Drama, Variety, and Comedy, is currently having their annual convention at the Crown Plaza Hotel at 3131 Bristol Street in Costa Mesa, California. For more information, please go to Spurdback.com. Breaking Walls, episode number 86, will examine what was on the air during December of 1945. That show will be available beginning December 1st, 2018 at thewallbreakers.com and everywhere you get your podcasts. If you haven't yet, give a listen to A Man Named Marlowe. Episode 1 of the miniseries is the most listened to episode I've ever produced. I hope to have new audio drama information to share in the next two weeks. In the meantime, if you haven't yet, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever podcasting platform you listen, especially iTunes. And if you've got some spare change, you can become a Patreon supporter for as little as $1 per month by going to patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So, until December 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode number 85. And I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. Turn